Hello and welcome back to Blood and Ashes. This is episode 32. I am your host Mo and I'm joined once again by my wonderfully insightful, if forgetful, friends, Jody. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. <laughs> and Vinny. Good evening. Vinny's at all day. <laughs> Well, that's one less translation. I guess, Joe, yours is in English as well. And uh, any... Yes, but the accent is heavy. It is very heavy, yes. Was that character from Princess Bride, was he Spanish? Yes. He's Inigo okay. Montoya. You, you can't get any more Spanish than that. Uh, I, I guess, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I watched that again. What was it? Like two years ago. Holds up. <laughs> Just the other day. <laughs> yeah, I watched it again literally like two weeks ago, or maybe just two months now. I don't know, but more recently than two years. Uh, it's pretty funny to think that that guy's old mate from Homeland. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's got range. Yeah. Um, <laughs> guys, this has become sort of like a de facto point of conversation before we before we ever start the, the episode proper and... Uh, the the question of how far have you read ahead Ooh. and i already know that after the last episode you both had to just read ahead a little bit so let me hear just how far ahead have you gone Oof, chapter 30 you haven't finished the book have seven you? no uh, really you really you've done it hey you've read the book no no i didn't i stopped i had one mammoth reading over two days and then i parked it at chapter 39 and said no Man, oh, you're, you're ahead wait, of me yeah. i think because that last episode ended with like a cliffhanger of mm. note, hey, like Matt coming out and then just blackness. And yep. then when we start here, no Matt, they're going to leave you again, quote unquote, hanging for a little while longer. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm on 37, chapter 37. Okay. I mean, well, I need to start chapter 37 still. That's not too far ahead. No, I mean, these chapters get intense and... Uh, well... To be fair, they do. I have I have the benefit or the the unlucky business to be in lockdown for the sixth time, and uh, have a good couple of days at home now again recently to well read <laughs> prime reading time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Joe, you you alluded to the fact that uh, the content for this episode is quite intense, and in fact, it is probably going to take on a little bit of a history book uh, vibe. I guess this is as good a time as any to let our listeners know that the structure of this episode is going to be slightly different in that we're not going to just space the chapters out between us evenly. Uh, I will take on the first two chapters, which primarily deal with Rand's experience within the, uh, the glass columns in Ruidian. And then Joe and Vili will bring us home with the, the homecoming of Perrin uh, returning to Eamon's field. So get used to the sound of my voice i guess after callbacks <laughs> in the first two, first two chapters you might you might be sick of it so yeah, pause so if you have to turn off your phones put your kids to bed and and <laughs> buckle down light some candles <laughs> pour a glass of wine no no you just made sense <laughs> okay well before we get to all that interesting stuff let's take a little trip down to callbacks
first up, actually a bevy of listener submissions. Uh, we've got a new listener, Jason Hall, and longtime listener Richard Jackson, who's contributed a couple facts to the to the show before. Both wrote in with some overlapping comments, um, both of them around the first couple episodes of the story, the beginning of the story. Um, our new listener, Jason, because he just found our podcast recently and, and he's been enjoying it and thought he'd write in to uh, contribute. And Richard joined us somewhere in book two and has been keeping pace with us and he has now gone back to start listening to the first episodes again. So we literally have a callback to episode one. Whoa. So, <laughs> well, expect it to come sometime. <laughs> yes. So, to all our listeners that have that are listening right now, don't feel like you need to uh, that like, like there's a statute of limitations on callbacks or anything like that. If you hear anything or think of anything, or even if I read a callback from someone and you have a, a counter theory or something to say about that, write in because chances are it'll make it to air. Don't 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 encourage it. <laughs> don't encourage <laughs> callbacks on callbacks of callbacks. <laughs> You know the mattress is going to come back. There's going to be an anonymous, anonymous submission on the website regarding the mattress. And that was it, it a dark hound that ate the burnt fade on the yeah, cut off mattress? That, that, I'd love that to come back. Probably more for humor. Well, I'm honest when I say that I really want this to be a conversation. Like how we always talk about cool stuff in the books. I want the listeners to write in and like basically have a prolonged, if delayed, conversation about it as well. So what these guys both wrote in about, uh, specifically, is Rand's odd behavior in Balon. And remember when he's sort of like uppity with those white cloaks and it was totally out of character. And back mm. in those days, you know, we thought, is this Luce Theron already sort of like presenting himself? Uh, Richard also said the same thing about Rand's behavior when he's sitting and he's having his Lieutenant Dan moment on the mast yep. of the spray, <laughs> you know, like also just freaking out doing his funny tumbles and like slide down the rope to get down to the bottom. Uh, but both these gents have said that these are pretty obvious uh, symptoms of the channeling sickness. Mm. Uh, Rand's behavior in Balon is not long after he healed Bella during mm -hmm. their flight to like through Watch Hill and all the way up to um, Taran Ferry. And the channeling sickness on the spray would be as a direct result of Rand channeling to save his own life when that Trolloc is about to skewer him and that boom swings around. I think we toyed with the idea of it maybe being a Taverian thing, but it would make sense for in the moment of Rand's desperation for him to be sort of like active in the preservation of, of his life. And he may have channeled by instinct there. We also, you know, often say that when Rand is channeling by instinct that it could be loose therein, but as Richard pointed out, there is a precedent for Wilders, which is what Rand would be, um, like Nynaeve, to actually channel pretty complex weaves by instinct. Nynaeve doesn't have Luce Theron in her head, but she can do complex healing and stuff when the need arises. So we may have been a bit quick on the trigger to say, is this Luce Theron presenting already? Because that's obviously the part that is, you know, drummed into us through the series and what we've mm. retained through the years. And at that point in the story, Nynaeve hadn't had the channeling sickness explained to her by Moraine yet. It is actually around about the time that they had escaped from Shadow Logoth and uh, Nynaeve joins Moraine and Lan that she tells her about it. So I think pretty neatly that idea of the channeling sickness um, fits into the narrative instead so, of who's there. So you're saying that for a while the channels, they enjoy it so much that they get sick from it, 
because that moment where they are um, picking fights with police officers and they are climbing masts and shouting at the world is very much sounds like overindulgence to me. <laughs> well, it's just like the, the symptoms of channeling sickness are odd behavior and um, drunk even and fevers and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, apparently. And then later when Rand is uh, on the apple carts, after the Four Kings incident, you know, like where he's channeled a massive amount and he basically does a big area of effect attack and kills all those dark friends that were surrounding them in Four Kings when they're trapped in that basement. Mm. Uh, it's not long after that that he is really, really sick on the apple carts. And um, I think it's Jason that wrote in and said that the sort of time jumping stuff that, you know, I have maligned so much over time, <laughs> uh, which has become a topic of great in enjoyment for Vili to bring up every time with the, the apple carts all the time is purposefully done or Jason thinks it's it's purposefully done by Robert Jordan to represent uh, Rand's own confusion because Rand is also delirious at the time and you know time you know being all messed up in his head could present in a sort of like time jumpy way on the page well Considering that the power, the, the immensity to bring down that lightning in that incident over there, you would be really drunk on the power then, They're like a, coming off a bender, <laughs> lying in the back of a cart, traveling home, and you don't know what day it is. <laughs> All been there. I'm, I'm loving this this uh, this channeling intoxication Fighting analogy cops. that you have going. Yeah. <laughs> it's working because it's passed it out sounds... in the back of someone's car. <laughs> I've got it's all very familiar. Of some of us in those waking up in strange places. <laughs> um, what else did these oh. guys say? Oh, Jason also thinks that Moran does immediately recognize Tom in Eamon's field, and Tom obviously recognizes, if not Moraine personally, that she is Aes Sedai, and that in the first episode, I think we said that they're sort of treating each other cordially or with respect. Uh, it is. According to Jason, he thinks them straight up playing the game of houses already. Like, okay, I won't tell your secret if you won't tell mine. Like, they're both aware of who the other is. Um, and that, you know, Moraine quite likely actually knows who Tom is. Being from Kyrian herself, being, you know, moving in noble circles, she would know who the court bard, who is famously good at the game of houses, would be in Camelin and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Which is an interesting thought means that their relationship kind of already starts in that moment in like, oh, that's that person. Okay, mutual respect, that sort of thing. Yeah, just always interested in all the interplay between Moraine and Tom because of how quickly they spring that relationship on us. <laughs> it's uh, interesting that it's uh, there. Um, obviously, I have got something there that uh, she's attracted to him, maybe like, saposexual in a way that he plays that game so good that really does it for Moraine in a man. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a section here uh, that I'm going to talk about in the callbacks about, you know, we sort of speculated about whether we would ever know what Moraine was told or asked uh, to the elfin. But in my sort of research, I, I found the letter and I read the letter that Moraine left Tom and it is super affectionate. Like it is, she is in love with him and it comes out it? of nowhere. No, no, not today. We'll get oh, there. Right. Okay. Now I'll have to go read myself then. I don't remember that letter at all. I remember there was a letter. 
but mm-hmm. not anything that was in it. So speaking of Tom, Richard also had some comments about um, our most recent episode in which, you know, Nynaeve was sort of bullying Tom quite badly. And Vili reminded us that, you know, she only knows him as the Gleeman from Eamon's Field, really, like he hasn't saved her from any fades or anything like that. Uh, and Richard just wanted to point out again a, a fact that most people sort of gloss over in that we sort of say, oh, that's just Nynaeve's way. And I think we have actually gone as far as saying on one of our episodes in the past that Nynaeve has always had to sort of try to bully people because she's never taken seriously because of how young she looks. But Richard was saying that, you know, she might look even younger than what you imagine because she channeled for the first time when she was 16. And the slowing down of her age would already have begun. So she might be 26, but only look 18 Mm. sort of thing. Or still look 16, yeah. Or still look 16, you know, yeah. So she sort of, she's always had to try to prove her um, stature, maybe, in Emonsfield, like around the the village council and the women's circle and, and that sort of thing. Uh, it's also something that I read about where her braid tucking comes from. I don't know if we've mentioned it on the show before, but you know how it's only when uh, a girl becomes a woman in Emmons Field mm-hmm. that she can braid her hair. And she started that that tick or that habit, tugging her braid subconsciously because she was subconsciously trying to bring attention to it. When people looked at her or treated her like a girl, wow. she's tugging on her braid to remind them that she's a woman. Whoa, that's deep, man. Never thought of that. Pretty cool, hey? Yeah. Richard also wrote in with a a, a couple small ones. Um, remember we asked, uh, who is Anla in that in that speech that Tom gives uh, mm-hmm. Elaine? And Joe, you said it was that agony, agony aunt. Uh, it was specifically a woman by the name of Anne Landers. She mm. ran, or she actually, there were, I think, a couple of people that wrote under that uh, nom de plume for 56 years. Mm. Yeah. So like in a nationally syndicated Agony Aunt column in the US, so like all major papers published it for 56 years. So yes, that is something that could stand the test of time and sort of, you know, present as a myth in uh, in Randland. Um, and then Richard just wanted to let us know that Maureen does in fact know her fate with Landfear, um, which is revealed in the letter to Tom that I read. She she mentions that. We are now going down to the docks where I will face Lanfear. She says it. So that is obviously something that the Aelfin would have told her. There's right. no other way that she could know that with such certainty. She talks to Tom about them coming to rescue her from the Tower of Genji and the, the specific circumstances that need to be met for that to be a success. So, yeah. She was given quite a lot of insight from the elephant. Who knows what the context was for that answer? Like what she had actually asked him, that I don't know. But yeah, she, she's got some, some uh, prescient uh, knowledge. We spoke a little bit about like dreamwalking and where are places that dreamwalkers would not be able to go because we read that they can't go to steading. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Joe, you said maybe Shal Ghul is one of those places. That would make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rowan wrote and he said, what about Sean Chan and Shara? These places that are, you know, completely unknown. Maybe Sean Chan is a bit of a stretch since people don't know that it actually exists. Mm. But Shara, you know, the Dreamwalkers certainly would know about. Certainly the Aiel. And yeah. who knows, maybe they have actually gone there. But, you know, someone like Perrin or Egwene could, from the wetlands, even if they can't picture something there to appear there, um, you know, immediately, could travel with the sort of like the, the advantages of Teleron Riyadh 
you know, mm. how Perrin sort of like runs ahead, like we will see in one of these chapters. Um, you could do that all the way to Shara and go, check it out. What's, <laughs> yeah. what is this party town that no one wants to leave, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's the problem. You'll, you'll never leave. <laughs> Even in Teleonriot, it's a party. <laughs> um. Speaking of Rowan, another mutual friend of ours and Rowan's, Kerry Katz wrote in a couple of weeks ago actually saying that uh, she thinks the the, vis- the the dream that Egwene had of Perrin fighting a man who's constantly changing his faces, she also thought was uh, Padden Fane and not necessarily Slayer. And I think, Jody, you also thought it might be Padden Fane. I sort of dim- dismissed it out of hand, but the more I think about it, you know, the wording certainly would sound like someone with more than just two faces which is Luke and Isom for Slayer. Mm. Uh, but Payton Fane has shown many, many aspects of his personality already. Then I've got a bunch of quick hits. Okay. Hello. Are you sitting comfortably? <laughs> yes. <laughs> is indeed the intro to Good Times by Sprung Monkey. Yes. Um, I went and listened to that again. That song does not age well. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't listened to it in ages. I've, I have fond memories of that time of my life, but I'm not going to be putting that song on a playlist anytime soon. All right. I made a big mistake in the last episode. Well, it's not huge or earth-shattering, but I certainly called out the rocking of the boat that, you know, as a result of Rand plunging Kalandor into the heart of the stone. I mentioned it in the callback section as if it happened in the previous episode, but we only covered it later in that episode. No one noticed. <laughs> Except old <laughs> Mr. Perrin. <laughs> yes. Vili, <laughs> uh, a ship railing is called a taff rail. Ah. There you go. Uh, Jody, it is Narishma who collects Kalandor for Rand. Later. Yes. You got Thanks, that one Twitter. right. Hey, another one you got right, Jody. What is 50 degrees Celsius in Fahrenheit? You just guessed and said 120. It's 122. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, look at you go. I know. Ruach's wife, uh, Leon, is Avienda's aunt. We were sort of like circling that one. She is. Um, does Pips survive the last battle yes no thank god (laughs) (laughs) um and then we sort of like when we're talking about moraine and like what she knew about her own death and what that would mean for passing the bond uh lands bond onto morel instead of nynaeve Mm. we we said that we knew that moraine passed her bond to morel because she suspected or not suspected, but in case she dies, Lan would be bonded to another Aes Sedai. Mm-hmm. And then later, after the revelations from the Aelfin, she, or we speculated that she had a much more clear idea of how or when she would die, which, you know, this Tom's letter and her talking about Lanfear directly would also sort of allude to. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering, like, why Morel? And it turns out there are a couple really good reasons. First of all, they were novices together, and they were friends. Right. Moraine, Morel, and Swan were all friends. And so she's obviously someone that um, that Moraine trusts. Uh, Morel has also helped some other warders who had lost their eyes to die. So Morel has this like reputation as being someone that can keep a warder from dying not long after their eyes to die have died. Because mm. they either, you know, throw themselves into battle that they have no chance of winning or kill themselves or, you know, like become so depressed that you know they're not worth anything to anyone so morel has some experience um and i think at one point when we get to the last battle morel has something like six warders like much more than any other green even Mm. and i think she's secretly married to three of them 
Something along those lines. Super into waters, old Morel. <laughs> That's why Land does not want to go there. <laughs> He's heard the talk amongst the other waters. <laughs> oh, God, I'm going to put my foot in it now and pull, pull the old pincushion closer because uh, I'm sure I read somewhere that uh, Morel actually tries to bed Land. Well, he is a fine piece of ass. She would have. He is. But he's in love with Nynaeve. Yes. Um, and Morel actually also later tries to help Nynaeve break her block. She, still holding onto Land's bond, tries to prepare Nynaeve for being ready to accept the bond. Mm. So she helps Nynaeve to work on her block. Um, and after Nynaeve is raised to the shawl, Morel still doesn't think that she's ready and doesn't pass the bond immediately. It's only after some time when Nynaeve comes to Morel and demands it that Morel finally passes the bond over to, yeah. to Nynaeve. Um, another thing people have said is like, they wouldn't know if, if Nynaeve had to go through the actual, um, the, the test to be raised to Aes Sedai from accepted, what would happen to Lan during that test? Because no accepted had had a bonded water and mm. go through the test to become Aes Sedai yet. So that was another reason to hold off on giving it to Nynaeve. Oh. So there's some actual really like practical reasons that make Moiraine's actions seem a little less dickish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A little. Yeah. Just a little. Okay. That's it for callbacks. Ah. Oh, wow. Billy, Billy was getting into them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you look disappointed for the first time ever. <laughs> Okay, so, previously on Blood and Ashes, Nynaeve, Elaine, Tom, and Julian board a Seafolk Raker and set sail for Tanchico. Uh, Rand stuns the Terran nobility by committing the Terran army to a peacekeeping and humanitarian mission to Kyrian before slamming a booby-trapped Calandor into the floor of the Heart of the Stone. Uh, he then takes the Aiel, Matt, Egwene, Moraine, and Lan to Rewoodian via a portal stone. They meet four wise ones and Rand, Matt, Avienda, and Moraine all head into Rewidian for different reasons, while Kuladin uh, and the Shido collectively seethe at this apparent slight to mm -hmm. the Shido. Uh, and inside Rewidian, Matt enters the realm of the Eelfin, not understanding the bargain at all, and after some demands, finds himself in pitch blackness, unable to breathe. And that's how the last episode ended. Which brings us now to chapter 25. The Road to the Spear. Now, before we get stuck in here, I've had, like I mentioned before to you guys, uh, our friend Jethro oft mentioned on this podcast because <laughs> he's reading the books as we speak, uh, but he's not allowed to listen to the podcast so that he doesn't get anything spoiled for him. He phoned me up and he asked me, what the hell just happened? Like, I read these two chapters and I had to like listen to the audiobooks a couple times and I still don't know what's going on. Um, Superfan Avienda, Adrian, yeah. <laughs> uh, she also wrote in saying, I can't wait to hear what, what you say about these chapters because she's also always been kind of confused by them. And I think I myself have always been confused by them. It is something that you sort of, you read through them. I mean, it's two whole chapters dedicated to basically this phenomenon. Mm -hmm. But you read through them and you're like, okay, cool. I get the gist of it. You know, the Aiel started here and then they something happened and then they ended up here. Uh, but reading it this time, I was actually blown away by how many little bits and pieces are strewn throughout these little excerpts, these little short stories uh, that manifest in the Aiel uh, culture that we know 
today. Yeah. Um, he said, as if the Aiel are walking the streets <laughs> in the current time. <laughs> totally the So what I thought would help maybe clear up some of what is happening in these chapters is I, I'm going to tell these stories in reverse order, Ooh. which is to say in actual chronological order. Because in the visions, Rand has stepped into the glass columns and mm. he starts having these visions, right? And he, he has a vision of something that happened in the not-too-distant past. And then as he progresses through the columns, the next vision is set before the one he just had. And then the yep. next one and the next one. Much like the movie Memento. If anyone's watched Memento, yes. it's the exact mm. same principle. I don't know. Maybe Christopher Nolan actually read The Wheel of Time <laughs> because it is the exact same phenomenon. Even with, like in Memento, you have the scenes that are in black and white that do play in forward chronological order. Here, mm. Rand walks through the columns and he's sort of, he's catching up to Muradin, mm. who is Kuladin's brother? I think so, I think. yes. Yeah. <laughs> put a pin in it. Uh, <laughs> Muradin is busy. He's he's doing his clan chief trial. So he's mm. walking through the columns as well. And as Rand is progressing deeper and deeper into the columns, he is sort of catching up to Muradin. And Muradin goes from bad to worse as, he, as you read <laughs> about not it. He's not well. having, no, he's not having a good time at all. So for the purpose of this sort of like reverse um, order that I'm going to tell this stuff, in, I'm going to leave the Muradin sightings out. I'm going to focus just on the actual visions and tell them in... Um, Again, chronological order. So starting at the oldest vision, which is the furthest back in time, which is actually the last vision that Rand has at the end of chapter 26. Yeah. So I'm starting with chapter 26 now, and I will tell the story <laughs> backwards through chapter 25. If you weren't confused before, I bet you are now. No, listen, I paid special attention to these chapters, and I read it several times and i had the companion guide next to me because I, now i'm mm -hmm. seriously looking forward to to what you have to say because like what you mentioned that all those little bits and pieces i noticed them mm -hmm. as well so let, yeah. let's get into this i don't know man i don't know why you guys are so uh, so confused by this it's just a story <laughs> that's told in reverse <laughs> yeah it's little stories with people that grow younger <laughs> well on this read through it the reason I'm making so much effort with this is because this really actually did click for me in a way that I mm. don't think it had before. Not Certainly not in my 16, 17-year-old mind. And I can't remember it from the 10, 11 years ago that I reread the series. Mm. Not not in this level of detail. So now, like much of the story, we're going to try and wring every last little bit of joy <laughs> out of it um, so that we don't ever have to do this again. Uh, so <laughs> without much further ado... Uh, the one thing I should say for anyone that's read the story, obviously, is that obviously these visions happen in uh, first person. So when Rand is having these visions, he is the person who the point of view is from, uh, often even feeling their physical pain and emotional pain as well. So when he comes out of the visions, he's still feeling the effects of, of what happened. I should also say that at the end of chapter 26, when Rand emerges from the glass columns, there's a short section there where he recovers Matt. And that will happen at the end of this whole section. So I'll cover the whole history of the Aiel, and then we'll stop and talk about that. And then I'll quickly cover the little Matt section, and then we'll be done with Rubidian. All right. The suspense, Moritz. Get on with it. Yeah, this is not going to be worth the build-up at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we begin with the point of view of an Aiel man named Charn, who is making his way down a crowded street beneath rows of Chora trees. So first of all, Chora trees 
are like a Vendasaura. They're the legendary trefoil leaf tree that spread a sense of peace and well-being beneath them. Already, I have something to say. In the age of legends, where everything was peaceful, was that because they were mass drugging the population? <laughs> if Chora trees were everywhere and calming everyone down, were they just suppressing Keeping the peace, human nature? Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of uncool. <laughs> well, is it really? Dark, dark friend opinion over here. <laughs> <laughs> they were using the one power as well to re- rehabilitate criminals. There wasn't much crime, but when there was, they would basically brainwash them into not doing it again. <laughs> yeah, you're not, you're not making a good argument for them. No, being, no, that uh, wasn't my benevolent. intention. <laughs> <laughs> I'm confirming your suspicions. Yeah, I mean, it's just reading this, like, because they're always talking about, like, ah, walking under the rows of chore trees, and it was all a land of peace and prosperity. And I was like, oh, wait a minute, it's because they're drugging them. This is like the soma <laughs> yeah. of this world. Anyway, so this is obviously set in the Age of Legends. There are joe cars humming up and down the streets. Apparently, joe cars, some of them actually had three or four wheels, and some of them were sort of like hover cars. Um, and show there's a, a white show wing flies through the air carrying passengers to some far-off destination. Very reminiscent of an aeroplane. Mm. Charn is 25 years old, and he's planning on accepting, he's walking down the street, planning on accepting Nala's latest offer of marriage. Already we see here, I yield custom, the mm. women ask, not the men. Yeah, He's put off accepting her, her proposal for a year. Uh, because it would actually mean switching his service to Nala's Aes Sedai, Zorel. Because the Aiel in the Age of Legends served the Aes Sedai. So his wife-to-be serves an Aes Sedai different from his. And if he says yes to her marriage proposal, he would then start serving her Aes Sedai. Because the Aes Sedai he currently serves is Mirren Lanfear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This comes back to haunt him later. <laughs> so... Um, as he's walking, he's knocked over by a gruff man with uh, with a woman uh, who's sort of walking arm, arm in arm with a woman. And when he knocks Charn over, he's sort of, you know, rude to him and stuff. And the woman realizes, she says, look, no, 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 he's, he's Aiel. And the man suddenly changes his tune completely. And she's wearing Streeth. That fabric that Grandel wears later in the story that is like yeah. sometimes completely see-through and other times not, and it changes color depending on your mood. Her dress goes completely opaque as she becomes um, sort of embarrassed about what they have done to this Aiel man. And this this Charn, uh, sorry, the, the guy that knocked Charn over is also wearing a fan cloth cloak, which is yes. a color shifting cloak worn by the warders. Mm-hmm. so fan cloth makes uh, another appearance a bit later so all these little bits and pieces sprinkled in here so i can't remember joe do you remember at all if there's ever a mention where the warders cloaks come from are they remnants of the age of legends like can that i don't know if the ice i can make them anymore they do make them they do okay they do okay um so chan gets up after this guy's knocked him over and he goes no 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 don't worry I should have been more attentive, you know, because the Aiel follow the way of the leaf. They are completely averse to any kind of confrontation. And he's sort of saying, don't worry, it was my own fault. The gruff man addresses Charn as Dashane, which is, you know, the, the old, old name for um, for the Aiel. And as we said, they follow the way of the leaf. And as they're sort of having this, this exchange, the ground beneath their feet and even the air 
ripples. And the man looks sort of worried and he pulls his fan cloth cloak around himself um, a little tighter. But Chan is already sort of bolted, not bolted from the scene, but he's sort of already rushed off and he's, he's pushing through the crowd towards the Sharom, which is a giant white sphere, 1,000 feet in diameter, floating 1,000 feet above the Kolomdan, which is this huge university. And I always thought that this Sharom, which you only read in the context of this little vignette, you know, like this little story of Lanfear drilling a hole in the bore, that it was floating above uh, the column down because of their prowess with the one power. But the one power is not actually used to float it at all. It's all done with gravitational and ma- uh, magnetic fields. Like it's a thing of science, not a thing of magic. Hmm. Yeah, cool, hey? Yeah. Um, so this is a place that the Sharom was accessed via either a Joe car or by traveling, you know, capital T traveling. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a place reserved for only like the most cutting edge experimentation and research and stuff done at this huge, massive university that was sprawled out below it. Um, and as Chan is looking at it, he's sort of rushing towards it because he can see something is wrong. A, a piece of white, like a white chip flies off it, followed by this huge gout of, of inky black flame. And then suddenly more and more chips and the whole thing actually breaks like an egg as it f- seems to float down like it's deceptively slow. But mm. it's actually crashing down onto the university below it and everything is engulfed in black flame. And there's actually like it blots out the sun. Like there is suddenly this just inky black fire everywhere. And this is obviously the moment at which Lanfear and or Mirren and Baydomon is her mm. research partner had drilled the hole into the bore. And from that moment forward, the Dark One had an effect on our world. Shoo. Okay. So pretty big moment. Yeah. Later, Baydomon commits suicide. He does? Yeah. I don't know if it's because of his guilt he feels or whatever, but I can't remember the reason why, but he, he kills himself. He's like, I've had enough of this shit. Cheers. <laughs> Pretty safe bet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Next, we jump forward in time when Chan is now an old man. So he was 25 here. Hmm. He's now an old man. But we're in the point of view of a 16-year-old boy called Cumin. Chan is Cumin's dad's grandfather. <laughs> Easy. Okay? So... Yeah, it's uh, his great-grandfather. So this is set three generations after the boar was created. Yeah. So quite a long time later, and later in these visions, they also allude to the fact that the Aiel live very, very long. Uh, One of Mm. the guys later is 63 and described as in his prime, not old enough yet for Mm. a gray hair. So for Chan to be really old, this is like a couple hundred years? Yeah. Don't know. The War of Power, I want to say, is 300 years, I think it was. There's there's a lot of time weirdness here when we start yeah. talking about, like, trying to fit these things on a timeline. The War of Power is a tricky one. We'll we'll get to that again. So, anyway, Kuman is 16. Uh, he's wearing his work clothes that are described very much like the Cadence Hall. Um, and he is standing in a huge uh, circle of men and ogier. So it's all Aiel men like himself kneeling around this field. There's 10 of them all standing two or three meters apart or kneeling two or three meters apart. 10 Aiel, then an ogier, then 10 Aiel, then an ogier, all the way around. And he can see other fields that are also circled in exactly the same way. 
between these fields, there are jo- like armored jokars with soldiers with shock lances and fan cloth cloaks mm-hmm. and insectoid helmets with Ooh. shock visors and stuff. Mm-hmm. This is full on sci-fi that they are describing here, like yeah. hover cars, armored hover cars with shock lances and stuff and soldiers standing in between them. Um, Kuman is fascinate, fascinated by the soldiers because they, they kill. And mm. to him, this is like, whoa, so weird. His great grandfather, Chan, said that there were no soldiers once, nor were there even Madral or Trollocs or Forsaken. And the Dark One had even been locked away. So, you know, he hadn't touched the world yet. But Kuman could not imagine a time with no war. So, in Kuman's life, so for at least 16 years, there has always been this war. And it's probably longer, considering how old Chan is now and him being 25 when the, um, when the war was created. Um, Chan also told stories of serving Lanfear and Ishamahil before they were evil. But people did not like hearing that kind of thing at all. And fair enough. I mean, Chan, maybe keep those to yourself. And then one of the Nim approaches. Walking into this field that, that uh, Kuman is standing around is none other than Someshta, mm. the green man. Mm. So this Nim walking in here is the green man. And the Ogier start the song. They start to sing. And the Ail men join in. And the Zemai field starts to sprout. And the crop that they are growing here, Zemai being an anagram for maize, mm-hmm. is a maize-like crop. It will now, because of the singing, not be touched by any kind of blight. Blight is the word that's used. No sickness will befall these plants and no insect pests will ever have any effect on them. It's basically like a foregone conclusion that it would yield massive gains or uh, massive yields and it'll grow like twice the height of a man. So it's just like... By singing the song while uh, the Nim dance in the field, they are basically raising a super crop. This is obviously the song that the Tinkers are looking for. Mm-hmm. Right? This is the when they talk about the days of old, when they had all the singing. This is what they're talking about. And after the singing is, is completed, Kuman notices that there are no townspeople around anymore. But the Aiel women come out to congratulate them and to say, you know, job well done, and sort of clap them on the back. Um, and he sees one of the uh, the Ogier walk over to a soldier who's wearing a sort of insectoid helmet with the mandibles covering his face, which is an interesting description considering the fact Sancha that the, the Sean Chan helmets are also mm-hmm. described as insect-like. I mean, But they were all part of the same people, remember? Yeah. Initially, the Sean Chan fled from there, so it may mm-hmm. have been that majority made up of faction of the Navy that wore those helmets that had ships Even- to flee. Someone from Arthur Hawkwing's army found a helmet and then started modeling their helmets after it. You know, like there is definitely a, a lineage there. What that lineage looks like, who knows? But it's cool to see these little links. It's it's that hard far to break uh, off something as potent like the predator-shaped helmet with that mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's more fearful than that. So um, the Ogier asks this soldier if there's any news, and the soldier says there are unconfirmed reports that Luz Theron and the Hundred Companions have sealed the ball, and that the war is over. Never mind the fact that there are still Trollocs and Madral around, but the mm. Forsaken have been sealed in the ball with um, the Dark One. I'm assuming this is why there are no townsfolk around at the moment. They've maybe heard the news since the singing started, and they, yeah. as Kuman finds out when he goes back to town, are celebrating the streets. You know, everyone is super excited about this quote-unquote unconfirmed report. 
but this makes Kuman think, okay, I need to go see Chan. Like he would need, he'd want to know this. You know, I need to go see what his reaction is to this sort of thing. So he rushes back to the town, but on his way, he is, I think, punched in the face. Like something knocks yep. him over, and someone's—it's a townsperson sort of holding their hand and wringing their hand, and Kuman is sort of like, "What's what's going on?" And this person is standing over him going, aha, they've sealed all the forsaken away now. So now we don't have to pretend like, you know, like we will tolerate you forsaken serving Aiel anymore. We will deal with you. We will root you out and we will deal with you just like we dealt with that old man. And that sort of sends a shiver down Kuman's throat mm. uh, back and he just he runs off to the inn that he, know, he knows Chan was staying in. Heartbreaking scene, goes in there looking for him, can't find him, goes outside and he finds him hanging from a tree, lynched by one of these townsfolk mobs. Yeah, a little bit of celebra- celebration sprinkled with some murder. Typical. You know. You know. Human nature. Then we jump forward to the point of view of Jonai, the son of Kuman from the previous vision. And in this one, Jonai is 63, uh, in the prime of his life, as it states here, not yet old enough for gray hairs. And Vinny, whenever I read Jonai, I think of <laughs> you calling him Jonai in one of our old episodes. Could have been one of the first, you know, like it's certainly from the first book, I think. Um, you make reference to what actually transpires here. So we join Jonah as he's rushing through the, the ruined streets of um, Parandisan, mm. something mm. along those lines, basically the capital, the sort of the main city of the Age of Legends. Um, and it's the, the home of the Hall of Servants, so the seat of power for the Aes Sedai. Um, and that is, in fact, where he is heading. There are still aftershocks. So this is like the first clear indication of the actual breaking, right? Mm. So Lustheren and the Hundred Companions sealed the bore, but the Dark One lashed out, tainted the source, and the male channelers are going crazy and busy breaking the world. Now, here is a time inconsistency. Uh, it is stated by Robert Jordan in some of the companion, companion books or in the novels proper that Belal was responsible for raising the Hall of Servants. But mm. here, a long time after he was sealed away, the Hall of Servants is still standing. So people have come up with theories about, you know, the Hall of Servants is like, it's like a church, you know, the building is not what's important. It's the function that it portrays. Mm. But in this chapter, it is described as the one with the big columns outside and the large doors and all that sort of stuff. So most people seem to think that this is a bit of a anachronism, like a just a, an inconsistency. But anyway, well, this maybe is where it was raised and rebuilt. A lot of time has passed. People have said that a lot of time has passed, but this is not the kind of time during which you take the time to build a building. You know, like mm. it's it's the war of power. Um, Trollocs and Madral are all over the place. Uh, people seem kind of panicked. And in fact, when Jonai enters the Hall of Servants here as well, it is like a kicked ant's nest, right? People are running around. People, everyone's looking nervous. The Chora trees are all burnt. He straight up refers to the clothing he's wearing as his Caden saw. So mm. like that name comes from quite a ways back since, you know, breaking times. But he runs into the Hall of Servants and he rushes upstairs to a nondescript door that he opens and he walks in and there's a, he walks into a meeting of six arguing Aes Sedai, uh, notably all of them women. And they're standing around a long table uh, on which is lying the dragon banner mm-hmm. and a certain crystal sword that, you know, from Minecraft. Know what it is. Mm. 
(laughs) Diamond sword. Ah. He actually wonders, like, what is that that banner doing here? And actually shudders at the thought of that cursed man. Like, quote, this is what what he calls him, that cursed man, Luce Theron Telemann. So these Aes are having a vigorous conversation, ostensibly about a foretelling that one of them, Deandre Sedai, had had about the part that the Aiel would have to play in preserving the wheel itself from the shadows. She said this important foretelling, and they're sort of quizzing her, like, do you have any more information? And she's like, no, I don't. I just know that the following needs to happen, um, and we need to try and make it happen. Another sister, Solenda Sedai, uh, sort of calms everyone down, stating that the time of contention among themselves is past because two male Aes Sedai, Jarek and Hyandar, will be there tomorrow. They need to act uh, because these men are already crazy and they need to they need to act before these guys get there because they are going to destroy the city. Two of them. You know, like that's pretty hectic. While they're talking, Jonai turns his attention to the other occupant of the room, which is Someshta. And he greets him, you know, in a friendly way because they know each other and he reminds Someshta that you used to carry me on your shoulders, but Someshta doesn't remember and he's already got the scar that we read about in the eye of the world he's already got it here and his memory seems affected he doesn't remember Jonai at all he sort of just goes was there singing i remember singing and he seems rather out of it and while he's sort of talking to Samesha, cylinder actually calls him over and asks if everything is ready uh, he confirms but he tries to convince her that some of the ail want to actually stay and serve um, but she says to him remember what jarek did at a city called Sora, where he killed 10,000 Aiel who were locked arm in arm singing to him in a vain attempt to try and remind him of who they were and who he was. They stood there getting killed by him, rows upon rows of them, trying to convince him that violence is not the way trying to remind him who he was and the story goes that this Jarek guy listened to the last Aiel for an hour before destroying him but the time that the Aiel won by performing this act gave the people of the city enough time to escape and after that Jarek turned that city Sora into a sheet of glass like he just melted the entire thing brutal hey <laughs> like 10,000 Aiel destroyed so Solinda instructs Jonai to take the things that they had given the Aiel and to keep moving until they find a place of safety where no one can harm them and to stay committed to the way of the leaf. And Jonah is like, of course we will stay committed to the way of the leaf. That is who we are. To abandon the way of the leaf is to abandon who we are. Prophetic words because <laughs> that's going to happen. <laughs> so it turns out that, what's his name? Kuman. I love that. Like the spice. Like and this. his brother, Paprika. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Jonah's father was Cumin, um, who we know from the previous vision. Um, he had abandoned the way and was actually hiding in the city with an old shock lance. Like he is fighting, which is interesting because it was him that was fascinated by the soldiers. Yeah. Mm. So even at 16, standing around the field, he was sort of like fascinated by the soldiers. Here he is during the breaking going, okay, I'm abandoning the way. I'm going to fight back. The first signs of Aiel picking up weapons and actually abandoning the way. And a lance is basically a spear. 
Mm-hmm. So True. it's like he's got his spear. Fitting. And there's also, you said interject. I'm interjecting. Please. When Cuban was talking about how fascinated he was by the soldiers, the humans and the Ogier, he mentions in that book. So yes. Ogier soldiers mm. back then as well, like yes. the Sean Chan have now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He, he in that in that scene. I know we're jumping back now just to confuse things <laughs> a bit more. But uh, he was talking in that scene. Is it cumin or Kulin? Cumin. Uh, he was talking about how he was tested for uh, being able to channel at the age of ten. Yeah, and that he was not found to have the spark. Uh, and when he was looking at the soldier, he realized that the soldier was only a couple of years older than him. He would also have been chosen at 10. So from yeah. 10 years old, those soldiers were being raised to fight Shadowspawn um, and just how hectic that is. It's like but, um, yeah, Ogier soldiers as well. Spartans, you know, raised from mm. birth to be warriors. Yeah. Before Jonah leaves, he hears the Aes Sedai speak of uh, basically what they're going to do with the help of some young male Aes Sedai who are not yet affected by the taint, uh, they are talking about creating the eye of the world. Yeah. And using those young uh, males to create a reservoir of Sidin that is untainted. And they sort of say to, they say, first of all, the sword must wait. So they're going to do something with Kalandor later. Um, and they then task Someshta with guarding the eye. They say to they don't say it here, but they say we have one last job for you. And having read the Eye of the World, mm. it's cool to know. Oh yeah, Green Man, that's where you get your mission. So Jonai exits the city and joins the thousands of wagons loaded and ready to leave. Um, he's approached by many Aiel asking to stay, sort of mumbling about about Kuman, saying, you know, like, mm, you know, Kuman's here, we could we could stay and help him. But Jonai says, No, we have to leave. We have to stick to the oaths that we've made to the Aes Sedai. So already here, also seeing some like potential for dissent, you know, like I said, I, mm. or not I said, I, Aiel already talking about like, mm, maybe we should actually do something here. Um, but they don't. So Jonah makes his way to his own wagon, which is sort of at the head of one of these long columns. His kids are there. Willem, who's 15. Adan, who's 10. And little Isol who is a little girl that's still got a doll. She seems really young. They don't say her age, but she's she's really young. Um, and his wagon, so Jonah's wagon, as with all the other wagons, has a bunch of chora cuttings in them. So they, they're keeping uh, these trees as a symbol of hope because all men need a symbol of hope to aspire to. So that's what Avendasora means to the Aiel. His wife is also there, Elnora, and she seems to be a dreamer. And in a lot of these visions the women are dreamers. So, you know, like it seems mm. like this trait is especially common among the Aiel, which fits our understanding of the quote-unquote modern Aiel as well. Um, and he actually straight up asks her if she's dreamed anything and she gives a very vague sort of, don't worry, all will be well sort of answer. But you can read between the lines because she is being extremely noncommittal with her <laughs> answer. Um, and the Aiel begin their journey from there with their wagons loaded full of Angriel, and Chora trees. And Sir Angriel, and to Angriel. Like, mm-hmm. there's like, I think they said there's like 10,000 wagons, or there's a thousand wagons and 10,000 Aeel, like, and every yeah. one of them is packed to the rafters with objects of the power. Yeah. Like, mm, holy yeah. shit, that's a yeah. lot. <laughs> you see the redstone doorway in one of these. Yes, regions. yeah, later yeah. on. When, yeah. So then we jump ahead again, and now Jonai is fully gray. So a lot older than 63. His wife, Alnora, is dead. His youngest, Isol, 
died with, um, without any kind of Aes healing available to help her. His eldest son, Willem, had started channeling years ago and was sent away. And only his middle child, Adan, remains. So already, Jonai, outside of the protective embrace of the Aes Sedai, starting to feel the harshness of the world out there and uh, demonstrating just how vulnerable these Aiel are in the outside world. At this stage, they've lost many thousands in numbers and wagons um, to the point where nobody rode now, um, save small children who couldn't yet walk. So here we see the beginnings of the Aiel being averse to horse riding, right? Like mm, none yeah. of them ride, they all walk. So through natural selection, only the ones that can walk very far and for long, you know, would survive and therefore their children would inherit those genes. So they're a bunch of cross-country loving motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Adan tells his father about a, a group of Ogier that have come from the north. And Adan had never actually met an Ogier. Um, they are scarce and extremely scattered. The group is the group of Ogier is bedraggled and they actually start to talk about the longing. Mm. Jonai thinks about the last time he saw an Aes Sedai, which is shortly after Alnora's death. And the Aes Sedai at that time had said that Ishamal was not entirely trapped and maybe not trapped at all. Um, and even her dress was sort of like patched and mended and stuff. So even the Aes Sedai at this point were looking like they were in pretty rough shape. But yeah, we have an account of an Aes Sedai probably from the Age of Legends saying straight up, Ishamal, not trapped. So yeah. Moraine's suspicions are correct. And she also just stole some Angriel and then left. Like, I'll take some of this shit with me. Cheers, Oz. <laughs> You're on your own mm. again. And then left the Aiel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Went off on her own little side mission. Yeah, thanks for nothing. She also seemed half crazed to the point that Joan and I thought she might also be affected by the taint. Yeah. Uh, there's also still a war that's on the on the go. Yes. Yes. And so the breaking. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because this is so. If if you're an Aes Sedai trying to fight all of that, and you come across a thousand wagons laden with tools to help you <laughs> score, battle, of course you're gonna go. Where's that bellfire rod right now? <laughs> Give me that thing. That fluted rod. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, isn't this this part also start with, uh, is it Jonai? Is that his name? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I have to go check. He's standing overlooking where Tesora used to be, that city. Uh, another city, mountain. not Zora, but uh, another one that's like like on the on the coastline. Like, on a, The like third greatest the city. From a mountain. Yeah, it's just gone. gone. And the mm, sea is a yeah. hundred leagues west of where it was the last time he saw the city. Like, yep. everything, yeah. Yeah, so here they actually talk about some of that. The Ogier say that the north is bad. Um, the blight has grown. There are Trollocs and Madral everywhere. So they ask these these Aiels where they come from. Um, and Joe Nye says, we've, you know, we've come from the east and there it's, it's not good either. Um, they were robbed of a third of their horses. Uh, so they had to abandon some of the wagons. Um, and he thinks that south, uh, about I think 10 leagues south, was a sea. But then he thinks to himself, is it even still there? Yeah. I don't know. Like things are changing so badly. Like I can't count on the sea being there. Unfortunately, Jonai knows of no steading for the Ogier, which is what they're asking about when they say like they're starting to feel a longing in their bones it's before they've mm. even given the longing its name. Mm. And they fear that they will die without the steading. So they are in dire straits. And the futility of everything seems to come crashing home for Jonai as he's thinking about this. And he has what seems like a heart attack. Like he feels a yep. pain in his chest and he sags to his knees and he's holding his chest. Uh, but he pulls his son out on close 
and he charges him with taking the Aiel south and keeping their oaths to the Aes Sedai. And Jonai dies, hoping that Selinda Sedai knows that they tried to keep their oath. Then we jump ahead now to the point of view of his son, Adan, who is now a grandfather himself. <sighs> this is depressing. <laughs> Clutching his dead son's children, right? So Adan is now old. He had a son of his own. That son is now dead, killed by the first arrow shot at them that morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is clutching the two kids, Magrin, who is five, and Lewin, who is six, um, who are crying. Some of the wagons that they were traveling with are actually on fire. There are dead people lying everywhere. And there are still men with swords, spears, and bows who are there busy loading women onto empty wagons after like casting out the the, the Angril that they the Tarangril, Sangril and stuff that they, they can't see any use for. Um tucking that stuff on the ground and then loading the wagons with um with the woman. And Adon actually watches them load his only surviving child, Raya, his daughter, into a wagon. He had already lost four other children. Elwyn died of hunger at ten. Sorel died at twenty of a fever that she had dreamed was coming. So even though knowing it was coming, she still died from it. Jaren threw himself off a cliff after he found out he could channel. And Marind was another child of his killed that very morning. So he's got one daughter left and these men are loading her on a wagon to take her off to do God knows what. So he stays down with the little kids and he watches as the wagons leave. And only when the wagons have left, he tells the kids to wait there and he gets up and he goes and he finds now also his dead wife, uh, Cidre, among the bodies. Um, and another another Ayul man, Sulwin, uh, a tall man, demands from Aran, what do we do now? Aran says, we bury the dead and we move on. And Sulwin says, why? How? We've got no horses, we've got no food. What are these fucking things that we're carting around everywhere? <laughs> and Aran snaps at him and goes, we have legs. We will continue. You know, again, pointing the way to that like famed Ayul um, stamina for running. But Sulwin and his followers... They don't buy it. They're over it. They discard some of the Angril themselves and they take some of the wagons and they effectively become the tinkers mm-hmm. because um, Adam's, Adam says to them, you're not, you're not Aiel because you're abandoning our oath. But Sulwin defends uh, their adherence to the way of the leaf, um, saying that we will go and we will find the songs of old, but we are not going to cart these things around anymore. So... This is literally the start of the Tuatha An. Mm. And uh, one of the Angriel here that they discard is the Redstone Doorway. Mm. Yeah. Which is pretty crazy to think they could walk through, any one of them could walk through the doorway and ask for some stuff and they would have it. <laughs> <laughs> this whole time. Can I have a joke car? <laughs> <laughs> or a show wing to fly to Rividian? But basically this chapter ends with Adan weeping, holding his dead wife, wondering how long they can be faithful to their oath to the Aes Sedai, thinking at least Magrin and Lewin's mother had survived. So his son, their dad, had died, but uh, Magrin and Lewin's mom had survived, and she was not carted off. They, When he looks up, they are actually standing there holding onto her skirts. Yeah, talk about a, a people forged in fire, hey? Like, Ooh, really gives you an brutality. And, and generations and generations, not one generation, not a couple of hundred years. I mean, this is thousands of years of hardship 
to make a people out of iron specifically so that Rand can go and fetch them now <laughs> and have his own little private army of badasses. Of extreme badasses <laughs> forged in fire, like you said, yeah. like just steel hardened steel. All of that that we've just covered was basically one chapter. That's all from yeah. chapter 26. All right. Everybody take a break. <laughs> go get a glass of wine. <laughs> yeah. Go refill that glass. Here we go. So now we jump ahead to one of those two little kids, Magrin and Lewin. We jump mm. into the point of view of Lewin. And Lewin and some of his Aiel friends are wearing dust veils. I mean, the obvious, mm-hmm. obvious link there to what we know. Um, because they seem to be in some, kind of like, some sort of desert surroundings. And they are busy casing out a campsite down the slope from where they're sitting. Near some dying campfires. He wishes that he had some water. But only children are allowed water except for at meals. So here already sort of that reverence for water. May you find water and shade. That sort of mm-hmm. stuff is already starting here. His companions sort of like scramble closer. Decidedly unstealth-like. <laughs> yeah. right? Like these, these, these guys are direct. I mean, this is um, Lewin. So Adan's grandson. These guys are attempting a reconnaissance mission with no training. The, mm. the the training that they've had is turn the other cheek. You know, like this is, they are so far outside of their depth. Um, and it's just cool, like in this sequence, like if when they actually descend down the, the hill into the camp, they are also like one falls through a thorn bush and yeah. the other one <laughs> slips and slides down the rocky side. You know, it is comically bad, which is just a, a very, very obvious juxtaposition to the mm. extreme stealth prowess of the, um, again, I'm going to keep saying modern day Aiel. <laughs> Say it. <laughs> so he's got a couple of companions with him. Uh, there are two twins who have a sister that is down in this camp that they're spying on. And another sort of like a tall, like a big, quite a described as like a quite a big friend of theirs. And Lewin mentions that his own sister, Magrin, is mm. also down in this camp. So, the twins have had their sister kidnapped and Lewin has had his sister kidnapped. And what they are doing here is they are planning a rescue mission because they've had enough of this like victimization of the Aiel. They, as we've already seen, been completely exploited by anyone that seems to come across them. Lewin thinks to himself that, thinks to himself that if his grandfather Adan knew what they were planning, he would try and stop him, even for, for Magrin. Like, mm. even knowing that he's going to save his own, Adam's granddaughter, he would not let them do what they are doing here. So they try and sneak <laughs> into this campsite, and this is when they're being so comically loudly, but they, they do get in. Uh, Lewin finds Magrin, but she is in bad shape. She's got a super busted up face, and she is basically staring blankly at him. And as he's sort of trying to get her to get up, and he's talking to her, one of the men, one of the abductors, abductors uh wakes up and he sort of comes over to to Lou and says i'm gonna skin you like a pig boy like you know just almost enjoying the slow advance on him knowing that these Aiel don't fight back at all but before the guy can get to him lewin's friend runs in and like rugby tackles this guy and chaos ensues lewin crushes a man's skull with a kettle um, he was sort of just like striking out at this guy, but he quite clearly dies because the guy's bones melt, yeah. uh, you know, in, yeah. that, in that cool way that RJ likes to explain. 
And another man comes from Lewin, but Lewin's on the ground at the moment, sort of like scrambling backward, looking for anything to fend this guy off. And his hand finds a rounded stick, like a broomstick or something, like a stick that he wants to Mm. like sort of just use to fend the guy off. And as he pushes it forward, he stabs the guy with it and it's a spear. And he has literally speared a man to death. And as he's sort of coming to, to grips with this and gets up, he can't understand why he's not being attacked by the other men. And his other companions had killed two other men. And they are still wearing, importantly, in this section, they're all still wearing their veils. It says that mm. they're panting over their veils. So here, mm. Robert Jordan's already establishing a link between wearing the veil and killing at the same time. And um, they sort of, they resolve to to take the girls back to the to the to to their camp, but not before realizing that the friend that had tackled that first guy with the knife has been stabbed in the belly and he he dies right there. So they carry him and the girls back to their camp. But before they go, they grab a couple things that are made of metal because they are hard to come by, but not swords. They sort of justify taking the spears because they can be used for hunting. And I thought, is this sort of a beginning of taking the fifth? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So, you know, like, they quickly gather a couple things. Oh, these are valuable things because they're made of metal. Metal's really hard to come by. I thought was an interesting thing to put in there. Hmm. Uh, could be the start of taking the fifth. Um, but when they return to camp, they are completely shunned for committing murder, obviously. Adan is furious and he chases them away, saying that they are ashamed no longer. Even Lewin's own mother pretends not to know him, saying, don't talk to me. I can't bear to see my son's face on the on a dead person or something like that. Mm. Um, they are absolutely ostracized completely. Um, but as they leave, Lewin veils his face for the dust. Mm. But it's, as he veils his face, he shouts, I am still Aiel. I am Aiel. Which I thought was a real powerful scene, him veiling <laughs> himself and then shouting, I am Aiel. That is the last line, is it not, of the of this section? Of yes, chapter. of that vision, yeah. Yes, all right, because mm. that's when I put the, the Kindle down and I literally had goosebumps. My arm hairs were standing up and my eyes were watering. I'm getting goosebumps <laughs> now. No. I was like, I mean, that is, whoa. That's powerful, hey. Yes, well done, RJ, well done. <sighs> yeah. Okay, intersection. Um, mm. The dust veils. I, the impression I get is not that they're in a, in a deserty area. I think that's the entire world now. After the breaking, after so many generations... There is no water. The world is fucked. The rivers are gone. Fair enough. Yeah. The whole world is a desert now. And they wear the dust mm. veils because there's constant dust storms going on. And they're always traveling yeah. on foot. They're always outside. They're not in the cities. And also, just how how civilization has gone to shit. Like, even the description. Mm. Like, people are just raping and murdering and stealing and pillaging. Yeah. And the description of that guy that gets up and says, I'm going to skin you like a pig. His clothes are like stiff. They're so dirty. And he's got this massive yeah. beard, mm. like a barbarian, yeah. you know, like mm-hmm. they have, humanity has fallen so far from the age of legends. And it was really yeah. striking oh. to me. Yes. No, I think you make a valid point. It is probably everywhere because there's yeah. actually another vision, might be the next one, where um, it's snow everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> like the seasons are <laughs> fucked. Mm. Everything is fucked. Yeah. It, everything is fucked. Yeah, that sums it up nicely. Everything <laughs> is fucked. Yeah, Robert Jordan, no, you messed it up. Two chapters, you could have had one line. Everything is fucked. <laughs> End of story. <laughs> okay, so 
then we jump ahead to the point of view of an 18-year-old uh, Jordan. Jordan. Yes. Jordan. Really? <laughs> no, no, don't pull me into this. Please, Billy. <laughs> no, I, I read that and I was like, nah. No. We're going to go with <laughs> Jordan. Too much, no, no, no. J-Man. That. J-Man. Um, Jordan, Jordan is the son of a now grizzled Lewin. So Lewin, who is I am Ail, mm-hmm. now an old man, and Jordan is his son. And the scene we join him in is a snowy one, with winter apparently uh, long due to have ended, uh, but the global climate is, as we said, busted up. <laughs> Everything's fucked. Yeah, everything is proper fucked. The elders talk of the earth shaking and mountains raising and falling, but uh, Jordan doesn't believe it. So maybe here the actual physical breaking of the world has slowed somewhat. Yeah. All the male lives that I have died and... Still fucked. Yeah. yeah. The world's recuperating now. Yes. <laughs> For a long time. <laughs> For whatever that's worth. <laughs> yeah. So um, he's... The scene we join him in, he is busy watching five people sort of tromp towards him in the snow. Um, and he refers to them as, I think, wagon folk. Um, he lowers his veil as they approach uh, and sort of leans on his long spear. Uh, I think lowering the veil could already be a symbol of, you know, it certainly isn't mm. a later vision that one of the guys lowers his veil saying there will be no killing. Mm. Uh, but here he's meeting friendlies. So he takes his veil down so they can see his face. Maybe he's not even thinking it, but it is certainly the start of like, you know, the, the habit of, you know, veiling for a very specific circumstance. Um, he, he guesses when they get to him that you have need of us, Jen. Um, and a tall guy in the group of five says to him, you mock us using that name, but we really are the true Aiel, because we know Jen Aiel means true Aiel, mm-hmm. right? So they're using the word Jen as almost like a derisive term or derogatory term. Um, but he says to, to Jordan, you have abandoned, you have abandoned the way. But Jordan defends their way saying that he's never touched a sword, blah, 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 blah. But if you've lost your wagons they're over that way so jordan like he's watching these guys he knows where their wagons are um, and you start getting a sense of the role that these that these guys play for the gen, for the gen a woman in this group of five gen uh quietens everyone down says just just relax and she starts taking the lead um and she basically tells him that they've come to quote unquote those from the tents out of desperation so you've got now two separate groups of Ail traveling not together, much like parent traveling after Fahil. <laughs> um, the wagon folk who are these gen, the true Ail still carting mm-hmm. the, the unreal around. Uh, and these guys in the tents who sort of follow closely by who have started basically taking on the protector role. So they have mm-hmm. abandoned the mm-hmm. way. Even if they won't admit it, they are killing people and they are trying to protect the gen. So this woman says that they've come out of desperation. So Jordan says, okay, I'll lead you to my father's tents. And this is Lewin's tents and they're a mile away. Jordan thinks that there are nearly 200 people in his sept, the largest of 10 such camps scattered north of the wagons. So, you know, somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 of these tent living Aiel that have taken up arms, which is, you know, a little, a little sizable little contingent. Hmm. But there are still many more Gen Aiel than Tent Aiel. 
Lewin is obviously there at the tents. He is tall, gray, and like I said, grizzled. Uh, Jordan has never seen him smile. Some people say that he smiled before his wife died, but Jordan doesn't believe it. Like he's never seen his father smile. This is Lewin that was clutching his grandfather's leg as his father was mm. murdered and then was shunned for saving his sister from barbarian rapists. Lewin's had a hard life. The woman from the wagons tells Lewin about uh, the fact that they had traded with the town and at that and that night the townspeople came back and they stole back all the stuff that they had traded and more, including captives. They had killed some of the people and Morin, the woman, uh, her five-year-old daughter was also taken. So Lewin says, okay, we'll bring them back. So this is obviously a, a, a task that they've performed before. And mm. um, when Jordan was talking about, they only come to the tent, I heal out of desperation. It is in these cases, you know, where they've been victimized and they need these sort of the armed Ail to, um, to go act on their behalf. So Lewin promises that they'll bring them back and he offers the wagon folk a chance to join the tents uh, and risk being ostracized by the gen forever. Um, he sort of plants a couple spears in the ground and some of the, um, the gen take up the spear, basic, effectively declaring for the tent folk, hmm. including Morin as a woman. And Jordan is aghast. He's like, no, this is, this is not a thing for women. This is the first maiden of the spear. Yeah. Mm. And um, Lewin doesn't even skip a beat. He offers her a chance saying, look, you can put this down. Coming along with us, taking the spear means killing. There is no shame in putting it down, which I thought was a little gentle hint at oh, talking of shame and honor, right? Okay, mm. cool. This is going to be, you know, core to your beliefs later in your, you know, generational tree. But Morin is determined to get her daughter back. She knows that she wants to go. Typical maiden. Lewin accepts this quite easily. And he just says, there's a first time for all things. As Lewin should know, being the first Ail to go and kill. I think technically the first Ail was the, the guy that got killed in the camp when they tried to rescue migrants. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. True. He's the first true. guy. He charged and he paid yes. the price. Mm, the iron price. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jordan sort of instructs Morin on how to dress in the Cadence. Always saying you can't go into a fight dressed like that. You have to dress in what will become the traditional Ail battle garb. And he takes a long spear and realizes that she's going to fall all over this thing and hacks a pace off it, leaving a four-foot-long spear, one whole foot of it being steel point. So it's three feet of wood and one foot of steel point. And sort of as he's describing to her how to use it, he starts thinking, hang on, this is actually kind of a good idea. Um, yeah. He says to her, like, you can use the haft to sort of block things, but I'll, I'll find you something to use as a shield. Um, obviously sparking the idea of using the short stabbing spear. He tells her, stab with it only. Like, don't try yeah. and throw it or anything like that. Just, it's a stabbing weapon and I'll give you a shield. And as he's talking to her, he's sort of thinking, this really has potential. While he's sort of explaining to her how to use the, the spear and the shield, he asks her about her husband. You know, like, is he not also concerned about your daughter? And she just says to him, look, he's already mourning her death. He is committed to the way of the leaf. Um, he is more concerned with protecting the Chora tree cuttings than, you know, finding his daughter again. Um, and she looks at the spear and she says, I'm wedded to this now. Yes. Yeah. God knows <laughs> my. Mm. Um, Morin says to Jordan that she saw his face in the dream. But Jordan doesn't actually even hear that because as he's 
sort of looking at the spear and the shield, he thinks to himself, men with swords will not stop them. He's already mm. noticing swords are the inferior weapon. This is what's going to turn the tide of war. So the actual, like the, the iconic Aeol spear is created out of the need for maidens. Like the first well, maiden. maidens. Mm. The first Aeol spear was wielded by a maiden. Yes. It's very cool. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyone that's come this far on our podcast is obviously a Wheel of Time nerd and would agree with us. I mean, just how cool is that? Trying to explain how cool this is to someone that has not read the Wheel of Time would <laughs> no, be... Of course not. <laughs> impossible. <laughs> but that's just another testament to like how many small little details that we've been fed over time that have been sort of drip fed to us to make mm. this moment so poignant mm. that like, you know, like you read these seemingly insignificant moments and they do give you goosebumps and you're like fuck yes that is yeah. awesome i love that ah, so let's forge on indeed now we jump ahead again to the point of view of a 20 year old man called roderick who is jordan's grandson he's carrying already a number of short spears and a bullhide buckler uh, and his veil is up he uh, he can see his grandfather with his white hair um, so Jordan has aged quite a bit that the elders would refer to white as snow. So mm. here again, there has not been any snow again. So like there was dry desert, then there was snow. He has a 20 year old man that's never seen snow. You know, like he doesn't believe that snow actually even exists. They seem to be guarding a number of Aiel who are busy digging wells and hauling up water skins. And while they're doing that, three riders approach them, not seeing like these riders are oblivious to the Aiel hiding in the rocks and stuff. So already the Aiel showing, okay, they've, they've upped their game in terms of stealth. <laughs> but Roderick recognizes the rider and he lowers his veil. And this is where he says there will be no killing unless they attacked first. So he's drawing the link between veiling and killing. So he takes off his veil saying there will be no killing here. Um, the lead horseman is a guy called Garon who knows Roderick. Um, and they actually have a, a quite a bit of a conversation here. The townspeople here allowed the Aiel to dig wells, which this is Garan's dad sort of leads the town, um, because they get use out of the wells after the Aiel have left. So they have struck some sort of bargain. Beginnings of trade between Aiel and non-Aiel. Um, Garan says... Water treaty. Yes. Yeah. A water oath. Um, Garan says to Jordan. Or he says that Jordan wanted to know when the gen started to move, and they have. And he asks if they truly are the same people, uh, the Aiel and the gen. So he's standing here talking to Roderick. He hasn't seen uh, Jordan, but he says to Roderick, your grandfather wanted to know um, when the gen start moving, and I'm just here to come tell you that they have started moving. And are you guys really the same people? Because you are very different. Mm. Um Roderick himself can't explain it. He sort of says we are, but we aren't. And he doesn't, he says here that he doesn't quite understand it himself, but you know, things are what they are. So he just goes along with it. Um, and <laughs> Jordan just pipes up and he says, uh, in which direction have they moved? And no one except Roderick has seen him approach. <laughs> like he heard a soft boot that he knew was Jordan's, but the, the rider's like, oh shit. Garam says that they've moved east across the spine of the world. So the... The location here is obviously quite near the spine of the world. And mm. the gen have now set out to cross it. And these, like these tent Aiel, um, Jordan and his, and his people will, will follow after them. 
Garam asks Jordan if they are not nervous traveling with an Aes Sedai, uh, because apparently four Aes Sedai had joined those wagons a year ago. Um, and Jordan says, we guard the Jinn. They travel with Aes Sedai. It's not us. Garam says his dad has an Aes Sedai advisor, and he's sort of like nervous about it. And she says that they will build a great city by the river, which will eventually become Kyrian. Mm-hmm. These are the descendants, or not the descendants, but the, the I don't know, one of the forefathers of Kyrian. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. <laughs> um, she also says that the Aes Sedai have found Ogier to build them a city. So this is, at this point, um, Tavalon has not even mm-hmm. started construction. Mm-hmm. Um, but Garam thinks that they should kill all the Aes Sedai before they destroy everything again. <laughs> Which, you know, is indicative of already a lack of understanding of non-channelers that it's men who pose a threat and mm. not women. So he's lumping the female Aes Sedai that they have encountered with the the breaking of the world, which which was only men. And as we know, by the time we enter the story, people are so skeptical of Aes Sedai for reasons much like this, just because yeah. of how the stories have diluted over time. All that knowledge that's been lost, all those all those uh, objects of power that were lost along those wagons, mm. among those thousands of years. Like now, I've, I, was, I was always thinking about this when I was reading it as well. Like you could go digging in any spot, and you'd probably find an, you know, <laughs> a whole cache of Angrel just lying around. Yeah, yeah. It's why it's like the the stone in the in the vaults has like so many, and the the tower has so many, mm. and there's a bunch in Tanchico in the museum and stuff, and the Forsaken yeah. have some squirreled away and They're everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So um, Jordan sort of muses about crossing the spine of the world, which he knows also has another name, the Dragon Wall, uh, which he thinks to himself is a very suitable name because. The Aiel's secret name is the people of the dragon. And I was wondering if this line from the vision is the line that some of the other clan chiefs hear as well, which is how they know that they are called the people of the dragon, you know, like Ruach did in the stone, because there's nothing in Rand's series of events that specifically says, and now you, the people of the dragon shall move forth from, it's just mentioned here in Geodam's thoughts. Was it in Roderick's thoughts? One of the two. Um, he doesn't know what will be on the other side of the Dragon Wall, but certainly a fight. There were only the Aiel, the Jinn, and enemies. <laughs> That's what he thinks. I mean, experience <laughs> has taught him nothing else over exactly. thousand years, you know. Totally. Yeah. That might be completely pointless, but was the spine raised during the breaking, or was I it think so. a feature of the landscape? I think so. They, they seem to be traveling, like crisscrossing, because at one point, one of the groups mm. is traveling from the east, you know, mm. when they meet the Ogie, who come from the north, they said, oh, the east is bad, you know, don't go that way. So they might be going, like, across everywhere. Hey, looking for, for a way to get away. Mm. Yeah. Now, it's just because, I mean, how the landscape changed, or so dramatically different on a land that would have been the same, just... Raising the spine could have cut off yeah. the patterns and Maybe. turning it into a dust bowl. I mean, because when they got there initially, it wasn't quite that way. Um, I mean, building Rudian would have probably been where the waters were spout, fountains was working in there and stuff. They have technology for that that they mentioned in the last mm. vision that there are large tanks of water underneath the ground that the gen somehow mm. had the technology to bring up into these things. Um, one of the guys in the last 
Vision thinks to himself, wars have been fought over less water than what was on display mm. here. Mm. Yeah, just a little bit about uh, geography. When I was reading this mm-hmm. as well, in this part, Roderick is talking about the mountains he sees to the north that are white-tipped, mm-hmm. but they are nothing like the mountains mm-hmm. to the east, which seem to be stretching to the sky. And if you look on the map, yeah. Kyrian has the Kinslayer's dagger coming out to the north, and then on mm-hmm. the east there is the spine of the world, and then yeah. Tangai Pass is the way across through, through and it, on the map it even says to Ruidian. So it's exactly that oh, spot wow. right there on the map is where they are in this part of the story. Where yeah. they are mountains to the north and mountains to the east, mm. and now they're going to cross over. And there go the gin. Yeah. Ah, finally, here's a spot where no one's going to bother us. Let's build a massive city in the middle of the desert. Yeah, I wonder. I like. Do you know? Is there a map of the of the waste of how far Ruidian is into the waste? I don't know. I don't no. know either. I've never seen one. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I've never seen one. Yeah, I'm gonna have to look that. Rand didn't help us by using a portal stone to get there either. Thanks a lot, Excellent. Rand. No, dick. Okay, so we jump ahead one last time. So this would be the first vision that ran. <laughs> we jump ahead for the first time. Oh, back- backwards. Yes. <laughs> Where's Marty McFly <laughs> when you need him? Dark apple cart confusion, <laughs> schmapple cart confusion. <laughs> now we jump to the point of view of a guy called Mandine. Mandian? Mandine? Grandson of Comran grandson of Roderick. Ah. So this is like many generations on. Comran, so Mandine's grandfather, was the first to have found the steading in the Dragon Wall and started trading with them. So the Ogier only started trading with the Aeel a couple of generations ago. And Roderick, who we read about in the previous chapter, or in the previous vision, had led the Aeel who killed wetlanders who crossed the Dragon Wall, setting the standard for generations to come. So like the Aeel, once they crossed the Dragon Wall, didn't let anyone else into it. If you come across, Roderick and his buddies ended your life. Yeah. Cheers. Stay out. No trespasses. Mandine is sort of near Ruidian, standing on a slope, looking down at the city with his wife, uh, Sialdre, who's also a dreamer, who says he must agree to whatever the djinn ask. Uh, her dream sisters had dreamed the same dream, and they refer to them here as wise ones. Hmm. So many dreamers, right? Like these are yield, like mm. it seems like many of the women are, are dreamers or dream walkers at least. Ruidian is still under construction, uh, but the glass columns are there and they are next to the Chora tree, the Avendasora, which is at this point only three spans high, which is 18 to 20 feet. And when Rand and Matt enter Ruidian, the tree is 100 feet tall. I went back oh, and I mm. checked. Okay. So it's it's still it's still young. No need for pins. Gotcha. But it has grown a fair bit, you know. Yeah. So like they've been building here for a while. Mandin just thinks to himself that Rewidian can't be defended. Um, not that anyone would attack the Jin now. I mean, mm. they've certainly been attacked. Uh, much like people mostly avoid the lost ones searching for their songs. So Mandin here is commenting on the fact that at least where they are. Nobody will attack the Jen and nobody will attack the Tuatha An because the only other people around are other Aiel, right? Like yep. no one else is allowed in there. So to him, no <laughs> one would attack them if only he knew. But there's a procession sort of approaching from Ruidian and Mandian and about a hundred of his men, they ghost down the slopes of this mountain to go meet with him. 
but he orders the men to stop short. He unveils himself and he proceeds toward this contingent from Ruidian by himself. He's vaguely aware of others approaching from other directions as well. So other groups of people that have all sort of converged here. Also, thankfully, unveiled. He mentions that to kill in front of a gen is almost as bad as killing a gen, i.e. yourself. So with this contingent from Ruidian are two ancient-looking Aes Sedai. He says their skin looked like it could be blown away by the wind and their hair is white, 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 but their actual facial structure and stuff still looks young. Mm. So they are probably hundreds of years. I mean, could these be one, like two of the four Aes Sedai that joined the yes. wagons in Roderick's vision? You know, yeah. like they are super old. I'm guessing they're a thousand plus years old based on the timeline. <laughs> Look, how old is Good. how old is um, everyone's favorite Aes Sedai? The name eludes me now. That that Catswain, Catswain, is like she's four hundred, five hundred, something like that. Okay, none of us know, so let's all guess. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna say she is six hundred years old. Like she is, and I mean she looks absolutely fine. I'm telling you, these Aes Sedai are a thousand plus years old. Could be, because I mean they still Could came be. from pre. Kyrian yeah. times, like the city wasn't yes. even built yet. Yes, they are so, older than Kyrian. <laughs> yeah, so I'm telling mm-hmm. you, yeah, they, maybe even thousands. That's why they look like yeah. they're going to get blown away by the wind any second. Look like mummies. Mm. Mumra. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, there's also a man that sort of steps forward, and he's named Derman. Uh, Derman asks why they don't carry swords, and Mandine sort of explains it's it's forbidden. But this was a loaded question, so. Mm. Um, the Aes Sedai just say, you don't truly know why you don't carry swords. Who is to lead the Aiel needs to come to Ruidian to learn. Those who cannot learn will not live. And this is this echoes um, Cialdre's dream that she told Mandine about. Like she said, those who don't come here and listen and accept what the gens say here, their septs and their clans will turn to dust within three generations. They will die. So that's why you must accept whatever they say. One of the other Aiel, a man who Mandine had like gifted a scar to across his face, he just straight up asks, uh, so what, whichever of us comes to you will lead the Aiel? And the Aes Sedai says, no, that one will come later. The stone that never falls will fall to announce his coming. Of the blood, but not raised by the blood. He will come from Ruwidian at dawn and tie you together with bonds you cannot break. He will take you back and he will destroy you. The Aes Sedai say that the Jen's days are numbered and that the Aiel must remain to remember or all is lost. So it's almost like the, the, the use for the Jen was only to get the actual cargo mm. to Ruidian, build the city to house it, and then sort of spawn along the way the battle-hardened Aiel that will serve he who comes with the dawn as an actual warrior society, contrary to everything they stand for, Yep, which is... I mean, Robert Jordan, <laughs> cool story, bro. Like well that done, in man. itself is epic. <laughs> yes, it's so, so, so good. This is what I was talking about. Like, didn't necessarily stick for me the first couple of times I read it. Like, just reading the story like this is just, mm. it's unbelievably cool. And it's all crammed into two chapters of book four or 14. You know? <laughs> it's, yeah. it's unbelievable the lore that has gone into, um, into this tale. So Mandine asks them a final question. He says, if, if you know your end, why build this place? Sort of pointing at Ruidian. And Derman says to him, without blinking, it's our purpose. We do what we must and we keep the faith. 
and Mandine sort of respects their lack of fear and he says, you are Aiel. I will go to the Jen Aiel. And the other Aiel around him are sort of like shocked. Like when he says, you are Aiel, they're like, what? Mm. No, no, they're not. Like, look how different they are. But Mandine, kudos to you, buddy. He says, you are Aiel. Um, I will go to the Jen Aiel. And when Derman says, he can't come to Ruidian armed, Mandine laughs and he starts shedding his weapon saying, take me to Ruidian Aiel. I will match your courage. Mm. He goes, you, yeah, he recognizes the courage in these guys, like what they've done. Yeah. And they're not afraid to die. They've served their purpose. And he's like, well, you guys have got some balls. I'm, I'm tearing up like, <laughs> just thinking of the magnitude of that, of that statement. Yeah. That's, um, that's really, really fucking cool. And that is the end of all the visions. So the purpose of the visions is to show you, obviously, how the Aiel went from, you know, being the servants of the Aes Sedai from the time of when the, the boar was created to show their entire history, what their actual purpose was, why the Aiel were tasked with these things from, from the, um, the Aes Sedai themselves, the foretelling that all of this was based on with all the little hints of, like, the eye of the world being created and what would happen with Kalandor and the founding of Kyrian um, and the, the battle hardening of... Uh, of the Aiel, the tent Aiel, um, who become, you know, the Aiel that we know, which is just epic. I'm, I'm still hanging on the, the age of those Aes Sedai. Um, <laughs> did, did they really, like after, because look, they could be 3,000 years old from the breaking till now, you know, uh, they could they be survived, over, yeah. yeah, are those the same Aiel from the age mm. of legends? Did they raise new Aes Sedai after that and before the tower? Surely they must have find, they must found have. women who could channel and try to you know, train have. them because they could be some of those or they just could be like li- like literally still alive from the age of legends. Yeah. Don't know. Yeah, man. Put a pin in it. <laughs> <laughs> How long has it been since this last vision until Rand arrives? Oh, um, yeah. The Aes Sedai are still alive. They're still building Ruidian. And then like that's the last year. Yes. There apparently, and I haven't seen evidence of this yet. I don't know if it comes out later, but uh, Rand is a direct descendant of Mandine. Janduin, who is Rand's biological dad, mm. is a descendant of Mandine. And I've seen that referenced online in places. I don't know what that's based on, but maybe the wise ones have a conversation with Rand in the not too distant future. I don't know. Have you guys read mm. Rand's interaction? No. Have you covered the chapter? Because there's a chapter coming up called He Who Comes With the Dawn. Yeah. Mm. No, no, you don't get so maybe, these kind of answers within the uh, before no. chapter thirty-seven or thirty-nine no. if Vili is not uh, aware of the answers either. So. I was also wondering at what point do the other clan chiefs do their visions deviate from this? Are all the clan chiefs descendants <laughs> of Mandine? Probably not. You know, so like, no. could they be descendants of some of the others? I at wonder some if they point, all they would see join. the same vision. They all just go through. Like Rand just happens to be a direct descendant of these people. Okay. But do all the clan chiefs see the exact same vision through the exact same eyes? Because it would be, Mm. I think it could just be too much to go consult texts. Yeah. To the scripture. (laughs) Where's Brother Maynard? (laughs) (laughs) Bring on the Book of Armaments. (laughs) I would uh, would say that uh, being. Uh, a clan chief would have sort of must be generational in a sept. And a sept would have been a family unit that has been formed over thousands of years. 
there wouldn't be so the blood of a sept would have at some of whether the six or eight or nine different storylines mm. that's going to be unique to their understanding of how they got to be and what they broke of, away from Maybe. what they were. Um, so just to all of bring them it emotionally to home to all of them. Mm. All of them would need to know that they're the people of the dragon. Yeah. That's one thing that it's would have just to appear in all their visions. Tailored through all of this, just where were you when this happened? Mm. Like um, some of it might be just these seps that always hung around on the fringes <laughs> and they're like, all their messages or knowledge that get passed across is based on <laughs> they'd heard it while they were farming. Yeah. Or they heard this while they were sitting in the tent. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably what happened to the Shido. That's why they're so shit. They, 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 their lineage just goes. <laughs> There's broken well, telephones. I'm always depicted so as the douchebags. Because <laughs> you yeah. are. Because you are. <laughs> <laughs> now, like I mentioned before, what's happening the whole time in between these things is obviously Rand sees all these visions in reverse order from what we just covered them. Yeah. Um, and every time he comes out, he sees Muradin and he's sort of gaining on him. And at one point, Muradin is sort of, he looks confused and sort of annoyed. And then later he looks like really put out and he's sweating. And then later his eyes are bulging and bulging and he's got like a rictus snarl on his face. Then later he has dug furrows in his own face. So he's clawing at his own face. And at one point Rand says, it seems to be like he's digging at his eyes now. And then later he doesn't have eyes and there's like a bloody foam coming out of his mouth, which made me think he's eating his own eyes. That's like, what I tear? thought too. That seems... Did he tear his eyes out and eat them? Because <laughs> he's chewing Yikes, underneath dude. his veil. He's veiled yeah. and he's got bloody froth dripping from his chin underneath yes. and he's chewing. What is he chewing? Where are his eyes? <laughs> I don't want to face the <laughs> Where are his eyes? <laughs> Man. Yeah. Not having a good time. And then when Rand comes out, he's nowhere to be found. He's <laughs> never to gone. be seen again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a, well, the Shido must really have a shit story. You really realize something about their sept and their bloodline. Yeah. Whew. Okay. So, I mean, I hope that cleared something up for someone. If we helped one person today, it would be worth it. <laughs> <laughs> no, indeed. No, I thoroughly enjoyed that. I enjoyed this journey, reading it and uh, recapping it with you. It's, I mean, I was not kidding when I said I was tearing up there. Like, I mean, there are so many moments like that one you also mentioned, Joe, like when he pulls the veil over his face and he shouts, I am Aiel, you know, like mm. there are so many poignant moments and just the the utter despair and futility of their existence is just like beaten into you over such a short period of time. It is such an effective piece of writing. Yeah. Um, I am blown away by how I've been affected by it. Yeah. No, for sure. This is uh, definitely something that needed a little, like this kind of in-depth analysis. This, um, what Willie and I are going to talk about now will be done in a couple of minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so localized. The whole humans field part is like, it's just relevant to itself then and there. Yeah. Uh, which is actually kind of a nice reprieve after like, this is heavy going. I read these two chapters back to back and it was just like, I had to take a break afterwards. Like you said, Joe, like you have to put the book down and just walk yeah. away for a minute just to process what you've read. Yeah. 
So let's come back to the quote-unquote present and let's deal with some other fun stuff. I mean, the stuff that happens here, there's a bubble of evil and a big fight that I'm just going to gloss over because it (laughs) pales in comparison to everything we've just gone through. But anyway, Rand comes out of the columns and he's sort of like, oh, okay, I'm out and he's seen these flashing lights and he's sort of, you know, like adjusting to it. No sign of Muradin anywhere. Uh, But when he looks over to um, Avendasora, he sees something hanging from it and he realizes it's matte and he runs up there and the way that i understood this is it's the ashandarai sort of like hanging between two branches and matte actually hanging from it yes yeah it's across two like a fork in the branches yes. and then a rope tied to the ashandare as i pronounce it <laughs> um so rand sees matt hanging uh you know from a noose from uh, from his spear. I will not say that word again on this podcast. Uh, he's hanging from his spear and he, he rushes over and he leaps up and he cuts him down with his flame rod. I mean, he can make things happen with the power, but he conjures yeah. a sword and then uses the sword to cut the rope, still stuck in his ways there. And he yeah. has a bit of an epiphany in that regard against these dust creatures he fights later, but he still just cut, cut Matt down here. And Matt's not breathing. He's got no heartbeat and he's not breathing. So he's dead. Mm. Qualifies for graduation from the school of Aelfin death. Yes. This this is that time. So Rand gives him CPR. Straight up. Starts beating on his chest, blowing into his lungs. And he'd seen Master, uh, Master Lewin actually do this to a boy that was found um, floating in the river. I wonder mm. where he learned that. That's a pretty useful skill to have. And pretty high tech. Um, but <laughs> Matt comes to... Rand saves his life. Matt comes to you and his first words are, those flaming sons of goats, they tried to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> and Rand's looking around like, who? Who tried to kill you? <laughs> uh, it's just amazing. Uh, he explains to Rand what he sort of like, kind of explains to him what happened on the other side of the doorway. He found a doorway. It wasn't the same thing. It wasn't mm. quite the same thing. And he sort of, Matt looks down and he sees the foxhead medallion and he sort of stares at it for a second. Then he, it seems like he was almost ready to throw it away, but he puts it in his pocket anyway. And he pulls the, the, the spear close to him and he's sort of like laughing about the cruel joke. And, you know, he, he quotes the text written on it that I didn't mm. write down here for some reason. But Rand does comment on the fact that he's looking at the spear and he can see some of the text, but he can't understand it at all. He doesn't know how Matt would understand it. Mm. And Matt's, just read it and said exactly what it is. And he says, ah, it's their joke, but I'll, I'll keep it. This is, mm. this is fine. Matt says that his head really, really hurts. And he, he wonders if, um, if Moraine could even do something about it. And Rand's thinking, what? <laughs> he would, who's this? Who are you? Like Matt would <laughs> never think about that. And I wonder if this is like maybe some of, you know, pure Matt being somewhat diluted by some of his memories or because, you know, Matt wants nothing to do with the power. Yeah. Why would mm. he be so willing to just say, oh, I wonder if Matt or if Moran can heal my headache? Maybe it's a really you know, maybe bad well, headache. Two possible things. One is that it's just a really bad headache, that he's willing for that to happen, or two, that, as you said, the dilution of his memories, so mm. his own life is being diluted into the memories of other lives. Mm. So that was with that my comes mind knowledge and wisdom. Yeah, so definitely the knowledge and wisdom part that comes with it. Mm. could say like, hey, why suffer? Yeah. Mm. I just imagine that he would have had hangovers bad enough to sort of have that thought as well. <laughs> and it hasn't been pointed out by RJ like this has, but who knows? Um, they sort of, they head back, uh, pausing briefly by the access keys and Rand looks at them and he thinks, not yet. Um, 
if you know if all goes well not for a while yet so rand has some idea that he's going to do something with these things he knows what they are yes he does I mean, he recoiled from them in horror when he realized it um on the way in as they're walking rand sort of feels like something might be watching him so he um he embraces sidin he doesn't channel or anything but he's he's just embracing the source now which is mm. pretty cool and that's when a bubble of evil rocks up. He sees dust blowing, but there's no wind in here. What is going on? And then the dust sort of forms into these dust creatures with claws that come at them and start attacking them. And they start fighting their way through these dust creatures. And Rand, using his flame sword, notices that Matt is using this spear as a quarterstaff. But it's got this, like, it's like a foot or a foot and a half of, like, a short sword blade at the end. Mm. It's not a, a pure spear. It's actually even slightly curved blade, like, um, much like Rand and Land's swords, right? Mm. Um, like a katana blade almost, if not as long. And Matt is incorporating the use of that blade in his fighting style as if he's perfectly comfortable with it, as if he's been using it in his whole life, which yeah. is awesome because this obviously is some of Matt's new memories and instincts coming into play with this weapon that has long since been lost. No one has used anything like this at Rand or anyone else because you never encounter another weapon like it. No. Do you? I think I think the, the Maybe Sean someone Chen comments it, on his weapon? I think it's the, when when he meets... Um, What's her face? Tuan. Da- Tuan, Daughter of the Nine Moons, yes. Mm. Like they know what that weapon is. Hmm. Um, so anyway, they're sort of fighting through these things and they're trying to make their way towards uh, the edge of Ruidian, towards the fog, um, but they're slowly but surely getting overwhelmed and eventually Rand just does a big old channel attack and he smashes all of these things to smithereens. But as they do, they start, of forming, sort of start forming up again. He actually thinks to how Lanfear said to him, you use a tenth of what you can do yeah. fucking around with this flame sword. Stop it. Just use the power like a badass. Um, so he does and as these things start forming up again they're like oh shit we still gotta go so they 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 just bolt and they run they make it out they run into the fog and they run straight through it and as they turn around on the other side they turn back towards the city to sort of guard against anything but nothing seems to follow them out and when they turn around they notice that they've been there all night that the sun is starting to rise and rand having been in the visions he's like okay i know what this means (laughs) and he says to he says to Matt, let's go back up the mountain. They will be waiting for us. And he thinks to himself, they'll be waiting for me. Mm-hmm. End of chapter. <laughs> I like how Matt's in that chapter as well. Like when, when Rand channels finally and disperses all of them, he's like, you could have done that the whole time. Why don't you start <laughs> yeah. with that move? <laughs> Give some shit. Matt has just died, right? Like he's just <laughs> yeah. been dead and come back and he is straight back into cocky Matt mode. Like he knows no other way. And they've taken it's some amazing. hits, man. They're all bleeding. Like the th- the two of them are bleeding. They've, yes, those those creatures mm. drew blood. So yeah. you know, like shit. You know, ran next time. Just start with the one power. It would be mm. very helpful. Yo, guys. Now I am tired of talking, and I'm sure the <laughs> listeners are tired of listening to my droning voice carry on the whole time. So, um, was there anything else you wanted to add to chapters 25 and 26? <laughs> No, God, Billy, please, just start your chapter. <laughs> I was going to say, it's the same amount of time that we spent on it than it would have taken to read them. <laughs> back to back, so. yes, yes, 100%, if not longer. Sorry, everyone. Sorry. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> Yo, we're really peppering in the Monty Python references in this episode as well. I don't know. It's just natural. <laughs> it is. 
Um, okay, so let's then move ahead. Let's let's do a little Eamon's Field uh, Perrin Ibarra palate cleanser in chapter 27, <laughs> Within the Ways, the peaceful, <laughs> unexciting ways. Take it away, Willem. Yes, so uh, we've got Perrin and uh, Gul riding behind uh, Loyal and his party, or as... Uh, <laughs> and deliberately states it that he doesn't want to make it fails uh, party but they are two way two days into the ways now and uh, the air is still everything's still it's just two days of traveling in the ways with nothing eventful much like the first stint through the ways usually up to the end yeah now uh Baron gets a little bit of a, a throwback to what happened when they entered the ways and uh, how he had the star slapped out of him by file which he ran in first, and then they, him and Gaul, moved quite fast to the, the guiding. Then mm-hmm. you don't see the light there, and of course that would, of course, the as he quite deliberately did, mm-hmm. deliberately a uh, bit of panic. But he got himself uh, slapped, slapped again, and punched in the short rib, and then picked the file up by the scrap of the scruff of the neck, and uh, he trails off his memory there. Mm-hmm. But uh, he's uh, he's obviously upset her quite a bit in that um, <laughs> exchange. Uh, well, Golden finally notices their lights uh, stop moving in front of them, and as we now know about the ways, if light goes too far from you, you actually don't get to see it. It's enveloped in blackness, mm-hmm. and um, he uh, gets uh, he hears that he's being summoned or file calling out for him and uh he he rides up to her as he always would I suppose mm. she is still his girl and then this like what 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 can i do for you she's like no nah, nothing i just wanted to see if you can still go would still come if i call yeah it's like just whip <laughs> it's terrible yeah so uh Gaul looks at him and says, mate, you might as well want to understand the sun. Like, <laughs> science is lost to us. We don't do it. We don't understand the sun anymore, but you might as well try and understand the sun. And uh, the maiden's always just having a, a little cackle, bane and chide at each other, just always looking and shaking heads. Love them. Um, Loyal then just sort of announced it like, hey, man, just uh, the reason you were summoned over here, and he points to the guiding as, the Manetheran way gate is this way. So basically two days in and they've made it all the way from the stone back to the Tourosia area. Baron at this stage in this movement has already picked up first a little foul width in the air, but with a calling confusion, didn't think into much about it. And then a very strong foul smell came through the air. And um, he then heard hooves on the stones. And it's like, all right, Trollocs. And as he yells Trollocs, Ghoul spins around in that movement, already veiled himself, and out into the light comes Wolfsnout Trolloc. Wolfsnout falls straight into a spear that basically is um, pierced and pulled out, and Ghoul just steps aside for the... Massive trollic body to fall down. Beautiful. And he's already going for the next one. Yeah. 
everyone, of course, at this moment is up in arms and there's just knives, fights, and Perrin had, instead of grabbing his axe, for the first time grabbed the hammer. Mm-hmm. He wasn't quite sure how he actually loosened it off his saddlebags, but it wasn't like the axe was in his belt loop. He made an effort. He uh, goes to town with the hammer and uh, cracks some skulls. And that's when a fade leaps into the light on his horse. And it's now all hell breaks loose. But before the fade even announces himself, he has been peppered with arrows <laughs> yeah. by the two maidens. Bane Chide is just laying the arrows into him like a pincushion, all into the chest. And uh, Fail's not far behind him, the knife going straight into his maggoty white face. Mm-hmm. And this... Faye does not want to die. So he is thrashing and stabbing and it takes all the might of them to eventually overthrow him. The uh, lot of the Trollocs don't die and don't stop fighting at this, this stage now that one of the Fae has been killed. And he's like, okay, well, then there's, there must be more. So we, we have to get out of here. Mm. The instruction, like everyone ride this, we got to get out. Uh, he asks Loyal then, can you please close this way gate as in for good that they can't get out of here and he says yeah i'll do what i can just get out Uh, the leaf gets put into place and the shimmer appears and baron just goes he gallops straight out and with a time shift they all pretty much fell off all blocks them off their horses (laughs) some almost breaking their necks but by the time that baron got through Bane and Chide and Gull have already found high points of vantage. Mm-hmm. Arrows are ready to go. It's okay, whatever follows out. And uh, that being said, uh, Beaky Face Trolloc steps out and the black wind appears. And Mustn't Shin just grabs at all of it and pulls them back in. And Jody. Oh, I, I wrote this down. No, he's going to oh, read no, it to me. Why would you? <laughs> why would you? <laughs> I'm going to just mute. Bitter blood. Blood so bitter. Drink the blood. Crack the bone. Crack the bone and suck the marrow. Bitter marrow. Sweet screams. Singing screams. Sing the screams. Tiny souls. Acrid souls. Gobble them down. So sweet the pain. <laughs> Interesting that Mushin Shin is using like descriptive language specifically for Trollocs. Mm. You know, mm. like bitter blood, bitter marrow, acrid souls, tiny souls. It's talking about mm. consuming Trollocs. Exactly. I think the acrid souls probably the 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 um the fades. Tiny souls. Hey. All Trollocs. probably quite acrid. Yeah. <laughs> Just in general. Yeah. But yeah, Mushin Shin is uh he claimed his bounty. Mm-hmm. Um, Luel seals the way gate and uh, he then tells Beren that, look, don't ask me to destroy a way gate. These things were sung, they were made, but I took the key from the inside so it can only be opened from the outside. Mm. But don't ask me to destroy it, which is just exactly what they wanted. Mm. They're not the ways to be used for people or for Trollocs or Madral to come into the... Um, to the area for spoiling the fun of poor old farmers. But that would mean that now if like, uh, if Moraine or, you know, anyone else wanted to use the ways to come to the Manetheran gate, 
they'd rock up there, there'd be no leaf. They can't get out. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens later in the story? Doesn't Loyal go and get... They closed up and reopened the waygates or... Loyal and I, I think one or two of the Ashaman are tasked with traveling around to all the waygates and sealing all of them up from the outside. Mm. Yeah, this comes back to bite them later on because I, I think Slayer goes back and opens the gate and from the outside and lets the Trollocs back into the two rivers during their battle of the two rivers. Jerkwad. Yeah, mm. he's not cool. I don't like him. Mm -mm. As we'll soon find out. <laughs> now, <laughs> Perrin then uh, surveys the land and he kind of gets an idea where he is. Like, this is where um, the, the city of Manetherin, what's was it called? What's the city called? Manetherin. Manetherin. Manetherin, yeah. Mm -hmm. Stood and so many years ago. But he can survey the land and he's got an idea where he is. And as he's looking and surveying the land, he sees two hawks flying and an arrow take one of the hawks out of the sky. And as this hawk is tumbling the hawk's partner sort of tumbles down. Like some of them do have um, courtship rituals of tumbling together. <laughs> if anyone's going to know, it's Vili. Um, yep. But then uh, the quickly get chased up again as a massive murder of crows um, <laughs> fly up and parents just like, Nah, just I won't tell them about this right now. What <laughs> what they've just experienced is bad enough because shortly after they closed that off, everyone's like, "What the hell was that?" Or more file. It's like loyal in his car, the mush and shin. That's that's he's gonna do what he's gonna do, mm -hmm. and um, that's uh, filed in for the first time. Actually, comes up to Perrin and he's expecting another walloping, but she starts to to mend his wounds. Got him stripped down to just his small clothes, which I think is part of a plan, mm -hmm. just to, to cop an eye. Mm -hmm. And then she actually had to sew him up together. But interestingly, it looked on her face that her sewing him up caused her more pain than she inflicted on him mm. in the the healing or the helping of uh, tending to the wounds. And that sort of tended to everyone's wounds and said, cool, we'll set up camp. No one's going to come out this way, Gate. And tomorrow we'll set up on the long trek to Emmonsfield. Indeed. Yeah. I've got a couple of things. Mm, go, Joe. <laughs> Probably the same things as you, Moritz. Quite likely. Yes. Uh, domestic abuse is, is definitely... I up. called it spousal abuse. So oh, right. Exactly the same thing. <laughs> they went at home, so it's not domestic. Yes, that's uh -huh. that's a that's a step too far, Fael. You don't just go slapping people around like that. And then he's he trails off, but later on she will will she refuses to sit gingerly on her seat. So he asked her to stop after several slaps and then spanked her, which mm. left her with a sore bottom. This whole thing is just super weird because they did it in front of everyone. Loyal yeah. is freaking out of embarrassment and uh <laughs> Because he just watched Perrin spank Fael um, and spank a grown woman. Yeah, like weird against her will. And the Bane and Triad would not help her, and she's upset with them uh, because they were like, "I love their reasoning, you, though." You picked the fight; you got to <laughs> deal with the consequences. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. shit happens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, another cool little thing I found as well was that when um, Fael was on her horse, like throwing knives at the mm. at the fade. 
she had in this moment as well folded her gloves, taken them off and folded them and put them behind her belt. <laughs> like, when did you find like the time to do that? The soldier lady that she is. Like the soldier and lady that she is. And there was one more thing. Oh yes, they uh, when uh, how the fade died was that Perrin smashed his head from you know you know from a twelve to six position with the hammer. Yeah. And smashed the the Fade's head in, and he was still moving Crushed around it. and and kicking and screaming, thrashing, yeah, yeah, and poking with his knives. Yeah, what happened to the knife? That was Fail's That's, knife was in his face. Well, probably got crushed it's too. Now in in the Fade's neck. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows where it is? Um, I Adrian also wrote in saying how disappointed she is in Robert Jordan for reverting to spousal abuse. I know. Yeah. Perrin is sort of set up to be the beefiest of boys and uh, we we should we're expected to interpret her physical assault on him as futile because he's big and strong and she couldn't possibly do enough damage to him to actually harm him but that's not the real harm that domestic violence inflicts it's the the idea that your loved one would raise their hand to you and try and cause you any physical pain whatsoever. So it goes for the spanking as well. Mm. It's um, yeah, it's weird that it is such a a light rendition of such a heavy topic. Yeah, I don't know if that is is that is that wokeness gone too far? Is that you know, is <laughs> no. this a comment that I would have made ten years ago? Probably not. But as a married man now. You know, the idea of raising my hand to my wife to spank her or anything is... No, man. Completely no, you know, it's anathema. It did not sit well with me, this this point. Um, it started as soon as she started slapping him. She slapped him across the face yeah. and then she slapped, she him, slapped him again. She slapped him before. And, I, and I'm, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Now, like, I understand, like, maybe from the writing perspective, this is the Saldean culture. Um, but still, there's the all cultures. And, yeah, I know. I don't have to agree with this culture. I think it's no. there's lots of fucked up cultures in the world, mm. and this is one of them. This is not mm. something um, that I would that I that sat well with me. Like I said, I, I did not. Uh, this is probably the first time I've noticed it. I didn't notice it on previous rereads, probably because of age, like you said. Um, mm. I mean, I never, remember it. Yeah, it's not something that stuck out to me. I remember them being physical with each other in that way. Now, mm. the only other thing that I could potentially let Robert Jordan get away with is that if they have previously had a conversation in which they both agreed that they are both into <laughs> a little bit of pain. Uh, are know? we kink shaming not, again? <laughs> exactly. I don't want to kink shame Perrin and Fahil, you know, if that's sort of their thing, if that's how they work themselves up into a, into a more romantic situation, fair game. But mm. this did not come across that way. You know, like it, it seems like just acting out of anger and hitting yeah. each other, which is yeah. fucked up. Hey, listen, yeah, I get exactly where you are coming from. Both of you. I sense a but. But do I need to remind you that we are also dealing with a story where people stab each other in the face, cut people in half to our celebration. But they're bad people. <laughs> it's okay if they're bad. All people are bad <laughs> they're people. They tried to cut them in half. <laughs> this is two good people no, slapping. It's, it's kind of like... But I, I think, mean, yes. I think the difference, Will, is that this is happening between characters that ostensibly love each other. Yes, I that's, get that. That's the part I, that's I, incongruous. I, I, I get all of that. There's 
I think that people would also, you have to be able to draw that distinction between what is something that's just written. Mm. And you Fair. can't limit people's ability to dream up and create epic stories because epic stories carry heavy emotion and heavy emotion comes through heavy things that happen. Mm. So if you're going to make it, if you're going to write stories about everyone sitting underneath Avendasorolela <laughs> tree, <laughs> eating its fruits and all living the hippie dream in peace, then it's not going to be exciting stories that give you goosebumps when things go wrong and give That's you tears true. when things go. So yeah. yes, I just wouldn't draw too much attention to it because for me, this distinction is that this is firstly fantasy. And there are many things that I would object to. And I'm, again, why they're still not torturing people for answers when hey. it's a fair war. Perrin it's, does. Perrin chops the hand off an aisle mm. and has them heal it. Have Has Isidai heal it again. Like there are torture scenes in this, which I should say I also didn't like. But I guess you understand it from the character's point of view. You understand the motivation that brought them mm. to that point. And in this case, Fayil hitting Perrin is that she is so angry with him for endangering himself in that way. And she is so upset by the idea of actually losing him and that he played a part in potentially losing himself, denying her and him their connection she was so cross with him for jeopardizing that that she just lashed out so yes i understand how the characters got there it was just like in my 40 year old mind reading that it stood out to me as like me too i don't i don't like that at all yeah but look i get it no like the I don't torture, like the torture yeah either. absolutely like the torture scene is is a sign of his desperation to find fail later Mm. All right, and it's there's no connection between him and the Aiel. Like I think that if you if Robert Jordan had not included this in the story, it would have made zero difference. Like I don't think it makes mm. the story better or uh, you know increases you know my understanding of their relationship or anything. I don't think it serves a purpose. It just seems gratuitous, which is why it stood out to me. Mm. Whereas torture scenes later on do serve a purpose in character growth and how much he regrets it later on and how much it shocks yeah. you. And things like that, but this is just it just he agonizes over it. Yeah, this doesn't seem necessary. I don't. I don't think they ever talk about it again. You know, it doesn't come up. Does that mean that the series is evil and you shouldn't read these books? Fuck no. Yeah. Just look. Way worse books have been written <laughs> than this shit yes. that we're reading now. I yes. that's like from Billy's from Billy's argument. I totally get that. It's just this specific scene just seemed unnecessarily, yeah, weird and violent. <laughs> Perrin mentions being able to smell the pained smell of injury. Mm. You can smell if someone is injured, not from the blood leaking from their body or anything, <laughs> but from the way that they are experiencing pain. So his sense of smell is like really getting nuanced now. You can smell pain well, spread. Why didn't you smell those trollocs like a little bit further away than when they were right on top of them? Because he was all befuddled. Maybe there wasn't any wind. Because of Fail and all of the, the shit that was going down, he wasn't he was concentrating. Distracted. Yeah. He was getting slapped. He's also he's also getting um, in the back of his mind. He's also walking to his own death. He's got a lot on his mind at the moment because he makes mm. a comment here saying where he chastises himself, saying, "Fool, you only have to hold out a few more days," knowing mm. that he's walking to a white cloak noose. Mm. 
fool indeed. So he's already resigned himself to death. So he's got a lot going on, old old beefy boy. And the Aiel should have heard that shit as well. Look, there's three of them. Mm. But also sound travels weird in there. Who's to say? Smell, maybe as well. If light and sound are both mm. problematic, maybe smell is as well. The ways are weird. Yeah. The ways are weird. Next t-shirt. Everything is fucked. The ways are weird. (laughs) Chapter 28 is called To the Tower of Genji. Mm, Or Genji. Or Genji. When I read this chapter title, I was like, what? What are we doing here? But in the context of this chapter, it makes sense. (laughs) And now I remember it as well in hindsight. (laughs) Take it away, Joe. Right. So, like Billy said, they, they make camp out there afterwards because it's too late now. The sun is setting. Uh, they're not going to be traveling through those through those hills at night. So, they set up two camps, obviously, <laughs> because Fael's group has to camp separately. Even after all of that, making up and really, you know, like seeing her pained face as she tried to heal him and fix his wounds. They're still in separate camps. I've even got a little picture here of a roll's eyes. Um, it's, <laughs> it's very good. Like, but also... Also, they are now out of the ways. Mm. No need for Loyal to be the guide anymore. Mm. Not bound by any kind of promise or oath that they, that Loyal had made to Fail. His end of the bargain is complete. They are now just a group of people mm. in the Mountains of Mist. And that does come up. And Perrin says to him, like, listen, just stay with the girls, please. Okay. Like, just, 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 just for one more night. <laughs> like, this will blow yeah. over. Like, literally does the next day. Um, so yeah, they're in their two camps. Um, they make, uh, they make some fire. Of course they have a braai. Uh, they have some <laughs> braai brogies, uh, some cars. Oh, Jody, you're just doling, you're just doling <laughs> out those callbacks here. Explain to people what these things are. Uh, no, and of course. And then they, of course, flush it all down with the clippies and Coke. And the woman, no, I'm going to go back. I'm just fucking with everybody. So they make a fire and they have some bread and some cheese and some, what the Americans would refer to as beef jerky. Uh, the rest of us would call it biltong. Uh-huh. And water to wash it down. There's no brandy and Coke available, unfortunately. So the women are chatting and laughing loudly. They've had too many Savannah dries. Okay, I'll stop now. <laughs> stop, <joking. laughs> So, uh, um, but they are like over boisterous to try and make a point, whispering mm. and then laughing raucously. And poor old Loyal is, you know, embarrassed beyond words. His ears are drooping. His tufts are, are drooping. Everything on him is drooping. He's very droopy. <laughs> He's not loving it. Um, Gaul asks if this is where the legendary Manetherin stood and, uh, and if Perrin is Manetherin's blood. And he's like, yep, this is basically where it is. And I suppose technically we are, but, you know, we're all farmers and shepherds now. We're not the great warriors. And Gaul's like, you know, whatever, man. <laughs> I've seen you and the one they call Matt and Rand fight. I've seen you dance the spears. But if you mm-hmm. insist you're not warriors, then whatever, I'll believe you. But he's not He's not buying it. That's um, so cool. Yeah. And the, the ideal, they know much of the wetlands. He said, oh, no, he's read books from peddlers that have come by. And I was like, as, as shocked as Perrin as well. Like, oh, really? Like, these guys know about it. He's read about rivers. He says it in inverted commas, you know, uh, rivers and mountains and forests and things like that, you know. And with the, the, the sparse area that they are in at the moment with just a few trees around them, um, is what he would have thought a, a forest was. Mm. Perrin then tells Gaul about the ravens. And of course, then they suspect there's a connection between them and the Trollocs. 
Um, mm. This is no coincidence, all right? Nope. Um, Perrin decides he'll confirm this theory in the wolf dream. So Gaul takes the first watch uh, with instructions to kick him awake should the need arise. <laughs> like, <laughs> why kick him? <laughs> like, Perrin chooses Just those words. Him. Just you know, you can you can just you know like shake my shoulder or call my name. <laughs> no, kick me in the ribs, please. So maybe your theory <laughs> is correct. Perrin likes the violence. He so does. Yeah, he does. All right. So there they go. They're in the wolf dream. Well, Perrin's in the wolf dream, and he appears first. Like the overwhelming urge of wolfiness overtakes him, and he appears as a wolf. But he's like, no, 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 no. And he, he quickly reasserts his uh, his beefy boy appearance, and hmm. the hammer as is at his side. It quickly flickers to the axe when he realizes it, but then get back and forms back into the hammer. And he thinks about how weird this place is. And just as he's thinking that, a window appears in the sky where he sees Rand laughing madly in a swirling storm with tiny dragons flying all around him. Uh, he then sees a vision of Nynaeve and Elaine um, hunting a strange and dangerous beast among twisted and shadowed buildings. This is their Tanchiko. Uh, episode, I, so. I imagine, on what the strange shadowed beast was. But anyway, uh, and then he also sees Matt with his Ashandare. And finally, Egwene and Amis looking surprised to see him there. <laughs> They're looking back at him going, what the, who the hell is this oak? Um, <laughs> and behind them, he sees the white tower crumbling stone by stone. So he's well aware of what's going to happen there. Somebody mm -hmm. on Twitter I'm so sorry. Uh, we'll have to put this in the comments section or something. Uh, mentioned that if they were going to cut something in the show, like cut out um, Fail, for example, who would hook up with um, with Perrin? They always thought that Perrin and Egwene would make a really, really cool couple. And then they would literally be a dream team. And I was like, oh, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. Because they spend a lot of time in the beginning in, the, in book one traveling together after they get split up. It's true. Like him and Egwene have this like connection. Mm -hmm. And they're both awesome dreamers. Like I was like, wow, that is a really cool idea. So for the show, like they cut some characters and, and made those two hook up. I'd be, that'd be interesting to see. So um, sure. Perrin reaches out to Hopper, but there's no response which he thinks is very weird because there's always wolves in the wolf dream. So he leaps a few kilometers. And this is what we were talking about earlier, about like, why don't they just, you know, cruise across to Shara and see what's mm. happening there in the wolf dream. Um, so he's like, he takes a step and suddenly he's kilometers away from where he was. And he's like, whoa, shit, this is awesome. This is way better than just walking everywhere. He's amazed. So he jumps down to where he saw the arrows coming up and killing the hawk and where the ravens came from. But there's, there's no sign of the ravens. There's no sign of anything there. So he keeps... Uh, jumping in in search of you know more signs and more wolves which he can't he can't sense at all uh so he's going in the direction basically of the two rivers and uh, looking and calling out for hopper along the way uh he sees all like ancient ruins as well there's all these little you know, like signs of humanity like he finds no recent signs of humans but he does find like what statues of of people of men and women covering an entire mountainside I'm wondering if this is not like a, what's that that mountain in the United States? Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore. <laughs> like all the president's <laughs> heads on or something. And he also sees huge letters carved into the cliff face. And I was like, what is that? Like at the Hollywood sign or something <laughs> from like <laughs> thousands and thousands of years ago. But no wolves, like nothing, nothing at all. And he's like, man, there's, there's always wolves. Something is very wrong. And when he stops at this one of these, on top of one of these mountains, he looks down and he sees a man, which we know to be Slayer. A tall, 
broad-shouldered, dark-haired man who seems very familiar to him. And uh, we'll we'll delve into this right now since it's no longer spoilers. But uh, this is Isom. So what what I understand is that when Slayer is in the wolf dream, he's Isom. He appears as Isom, but when he's in the real world, he Mostly. appears. Okay, he can decide. He mm. can change. All right. Yeah. But when he's but he can when he's change in, his appearance, yeah, in the world of dreams. But if he wants to be either one in the real world, he has to change in the world of dreams and then step out. Ah, he can't change in the real world. Okay. Well, all right. Did not remember that. Thanks for the. the I update. read that recently. All right. So anyway, he recognizes. He says he recognizes him. He seems familiar. That's because Isom is Lan's cousin. Mm-hmm. So he reminds him of Lan. Luke is Rand's uncle. Yes. So, um, Perrin also smells him as cold, not quite human. And uh, Slayer, at this point, notices him, kind of hesitates for one second, and then flees. And I was reading up about Isom a little bit, and uh, Lord Luke, and all of that. So, apparently, Mm -hmm. when when Isom fled, he went north of the wall, and he grew up in the town, Mm -hmm. where there are Trollocs. And dreadlords mm. and all dark kinds friends of and, dark friends yeah. and all these people, and also that's where the the where all the Aiel men who learn they can tr- they can channel flee north to go and fight the shadow and die in the fight basically, and they some of them they, are turned and end up living in this town, and yeah. they have like this there's differences like they have red veils instead of black veils, and when they kill you they unveil themselves instead of veiling themselves to show you their face. I was like, oh. And don't they like file their teeth or something? Yes. The ones that, because not all of them end up being channelers or something along those lines. There's some Aiel yeah. men up there that aren't channelers, but the ones that are and are turned against their will file their teeth down yeah. to, to fangs. All of their yeah. teeth. Yeah. yeah. Some pretty uh, crazy pretty places. <laughs> Everything is fucked up. Yep. Indeed. So, anyway, Slayer has fled seeing Perrin, and Perrin follows. So they're both streaking across the landscape, you know, from the top of mountain peak to mountain peak, covering vast distances in those massive leaps. Um, and before, when, 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 after the first leap, at least, when Perrin lands where Slayer was, he sees the corpse of a wolf that's half-skinned. And he's like, oh, shit, this guy's killing wolves in the wolf dream. Like, he didn't even know that was possible. So the, the pursuit continues. They're going kind of like northeast. I, I, was, I was looking at maps trying to figure out all this stuff. They go through the Westwood, mm-hmm. Watch Hill, River Taran, and they go all the way to the Tower of Genji, or Genji, mm-hmm. however you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where basically the pursuit stops because a Slayer goes inside and disappears. Um, Perrin looks at the tower and he's going around it. There's no doors. There's no entryways, obviously, um, to get inside. So he wonders how he got in there. And he's going to try and go in himself when... Hopper appears and gives him a very strong sending of stop, you fool. Uh, <laughs> don't go there. Bad. Stop. All right. This is a very, very dangerous place. Uh, he tells him that Slayer is there in the wolf room in the flesh. He's not dreaming. So he is literally there. And that's how he is killing the wolves. There's some sort of connection with that. And if you he kills you in, yeah, that's it. You're dead, buddy. You're not, hmm. you're not coming out of that. Um, so he's explaining this to him a little bit as well. And, uh, from behind Perrin, he hears a woman's voice, which startles him and it's old Brigitte, uh, Silverbow. We mm-hmm. know this now, but as for first time readers, I imagine you're like, who the hell is this woman? Um, she warns him about the tower as well. Like, yeah, stay away. That's a bad place. Uh, like her description as well is like, it's not evil. Like the dark one is evil, the elfin or the fins at least, but they are so mm-hmm. different from mankind that they might as well be the same thing. 
that's a yeah. cool a cool way of describing it like there's no mm. way you can understand it so you basically they're just going to kill you yeah you can't relate to them your goals are not the same they are yeah. different enough to the point of it doesn't matter what what their goals are they are a threat yeah there's there's nothing you can do about it to stay far far away from that tower there's a there's a moment where he notices something silver her bow obviously flickering in the mm. in the light underneath her coat and she covers it up within a second notices that he noticed and is like you've got some sharp eyes on you there mr golden eyes mm-hmm. he asks her if she's ice to die but she laughs like how many times in the story <laughs> whenever someone one of our one of our uh, intrepid group meets someone they don't know like they can't judge who they are like are you ice to die mm. gotta be ice mm. to die and she's <laughs> laughing and she's like no 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 i'm i'm I only came to warn you of the the tower despite the rules or the precepts as she calls them as well and he's mm-hmm. like who, who are you what rules like it's all very confusing he tells her that hopper said the same and like the tower is dangerous and he should stay away and she's surprised like whoa and she looks down at hopper so she could see hopper and him and she's surprised that he can speak to wolves and he's like wow this is an ancient thing that's that's coming again Mm-hmm. Um, she gives him a breakdown of the fins again. We've done that already, so we won't go into there. But and also just relates it to the snakes and foxes game. Like I said, have you played that mm-hmm. game? And it gives him that speech about iron to bind and fire to blah blah blah, all of that stuff. She warns him to stay out of Teleonriad just in general, which is obviously <laughs> not, not going to happen. Nope. And she mentions because he asks her about Slayer, and she goes, "Yeah, she knows of him. He's new. Like he's he's kind of new to the world of dreams, but the the evil." that is in him is ancient, all right? Mm-hmm. Um, then she realizes, of course, that she's being super chatty and realizes, ah, wait, are you Taviran? Because <laughs> I've hung around with some Taverans <laughs> before. They kind of loosen your tongue because I've like told you way too much. Like I shouldn't even approached you or made myself visible or said anything from the beginning, but handy being Taviran, you get a lot of information mm-hmm. dumps from time to time. So before Perrin can actually find out who she is exactly, uh, he sees a shadow out of the corner of his eye, fall down behind him, and he turns quickly and abruptly, but there's nothing there. Um, and when he turns back, she is gone. Now, <laughs> Moritz, before we started this, you were saying something about this being the shadow of Geidel Kane? I think so, because parents says the shadow looks like it's carrying two swords on its back, oh and Geidel Kane. I did not read that. <laughs> to do that. that. I may have read those words, but they did not stick in my brain. Oh, God. Uh, Am I setting myself up here? Is that not what it says? Uh, <laughs> okay. I'm going to carry on. You go look in the book. All right. So consult the scriptures. Please do. He asks Hopper what he thought of this strange woman. And Hopper's like, what, what woman? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> you were making noises at the wind, he says. And I'm thinking this whole, like during this whole <laughs> conversation was... Hopper just lying there patiently waiting for Perrin to stop talking to himself, basically. <laughs> like, he did not say anything. He's just like, well, crazy humans, I suppose. They just, you know, make noises at the wind from time to time. But uh, he tells her, well, look, you know, anyway, this woman, she was real and she agrees with you. And Hopper's like, well, you know, then she's very wise if she agrees with me. Quick, um, quick interjection. Yes. There was no one there, but he had seen it. The shadow of a man with the hilts of two swords rising above his shoulders. Something about that image teased his memory. Ah, all right. There you go. Proof. Undisputed. Irrefutable. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Perrin tells Hopper then of his mission. He says, look, I've come home. Family's in danger. Town's in danger. This This is what I'm doing. This is my plan. Hopper tells him to avoid going home. 
there are no wolves here. That uh, Slayer walks the dream. It's too dangerous. Everyone, you know, later on in the chapters as well, like Perrin, get out of here. Like you, mm. this is bad time to be here. But of course, yeah. Perrin doesn't listen. Uh, he's not going to <laughs> change his mind. And Hopper's like, yeah, f- fine, whatever. I'm leaving. Um, and he leaves him with some awesome wolf words that I will quote. We will run together in the last hunt. And may you know good hunting and she's to give you many cubs. <laughs> <laughs> like, sweet. Uh, we all nice. understand. Nice. nice. Thanks, for the, thanks for the good wishes, Hopper. So Perrin wakes up and uh, takes over the watch from Gaul. Fael is doing the same in her camp at the same time. She's also woken up and she'll be taking over. He warns Gaul that um, things are far worse in the two rivers than he had thought. And Gaul's like, yeah, they usually are. You know, <laughs> if you plan for the worst, then every surprise is pleasant. <laughs> yes. The, 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 and now that we've seen what the, 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 the development of the Aiel has been, typical Aiel response. Yeah. 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 You so think that's bad. Yeah. <laughs> you should go to these <laughs> to Ruidians. To <laughs> go check out what these uh what these will can show you. So uh the chapter ends with uh with old Perrin sitting there thinking, uh Slayer, the Ravens, the Shadow Spawn, something is amiss. And that's it. Yeah. You got any thoughts there, Will? No, I think Joe said it well there. Not much I can add on to that one. No, there's, I mean, in all four of these last chapters, it's very much like, again, just very immediate story. Not a lot of ramifications and like links to other things. Um, except for the Tara Genji stuff and the Birgitta. Um, no, I think there was a lot. Birgitta, Tara Genji, you've got Slayer. It's, uh, I mean, Slayer hasn't really been introduced for New Reader yet. It's just oh, and all, this whole section. There's a little bit of, yeah. A big thing, hey. I picked up there that um, Bear wants Gaul to go to Ruidian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Super important. <laughs> Gaul is clan chief material. Yeah. Hmm. Props. Go Gaul. Um, I also enjoyed the fact that Brigitte says to Perrin that he has a bannerman's courage when at Falmay he carried the dragon ah, banner where Brigitte also fought. She has seen him carry a banner. Does she remember him? I don't think so. She doesn't act that way. Yeah. Maybe their memory is affected. Um, but, I mean, she was there at the 100 Heroes of the Horn. Um, parent walks over and uses his axe to chop down a thing, and he puts the banner on it, and he rides with the dragon mm. banner. So he is yeah. literally a bannerman in that battle at Falmay. All right, then. Shall we move along? Let's do it. You ready, Willem, for Chapter 29? Aye. <laughs> I am. <laughs> That's not very convincing. It's got us. Got us. You got to set the the tone with this chapter. I'm not going right. to be stoked about this one. It's, uh... <sighs> it's rough going. Um. So chapter twenty nine is called Homecoming. Uh, Vili, if you would be so kind. Now, Perrin uh, been traveling with a party now for the three odd days that it took them to clear the mountains and get down to the valleys. Um, and while Perrin is riding, he has, he's got deep thought about his family and sort of lists through who is his family on the farm, which we didn't really, because you don't meet parents, no. parents and humans feel in the beginning. They all live outside of the, the village, quite far away, too far for a casual travel. Mm. So they, he saw his parents only feast days and 
big events um, because he moved to be a blacksmith in town and took up an apprenticeship. So he's the first boy out of the house mm. and not, not going to become a farmer. How old is it? Like at 15 or something, he moved to town away from the farm and now yeah, hardly yeah, sees his family at blacksmith. all. So he, and he goes through and lists it. So his mom and his dad, obviously. Uh, he's got Adora, his elder sister, Dizelle and Pietrum. Adora would be 16 and ready to braid her hair. Uh, Dizelle is 12 and Pietrum is uh, 9. Uh, then Uncle Edward, Aunt uh, Magda, uh, Aunt Nayan and the great Auntie Eslin, plus some other cousins <laughs> from his Random father's brother's side, unnamed, <laughs> unnamed cousins. Uh, but it's it's a it's like a, a homestead, mm, of yeah. extended family on this farm where they farm exclusively away from it. Uh, they finally reach Quarry Road, and we're back into familiar territory. Hey, Quarry and Road. Baron knows exactly where he is, mm-hmm. um, and he is bracing going to Tam's farm now, but before he even reaches the farm, he can smell, you know, this farm's burned down. Mm. I can smell the char on it. So he's not surprised when they sort of turn the corner and uh, find the farm to pieces, gates on hinges hanging, uh, one month or more's wheat growth up against everything. The, the sides are rusted. It's There's been no one there for a while. Uh, the maidens and ghoul do a quick lap of the farm. And Ghoul already picks up some valuable information. Like, firstly, no man died yet. So, Tam didn't die yet. Uh, secondly, um, some sheep were killed. So, yes, it must have been a trollic attack. Because who's going to kill sheep? And some ran off. But the tracks of two men, or women, came back at a later stage, rounding up the surviving sheep and taking them away to the north. Or the to a direction, I can't recall exactly what direction, which made me think this might be Tam and Abel coming back later to get and salvage what they could salvage from the place and to move off. And I mean, sheep, sheep. Mm-hmm. Um, they, uh, yeah, good up for gold and his tracking skills. I mean, it's been a month. <laughs> but I suppose yeah. the wetland does make it easy to track where there's mud. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, filed in Osperin if this is where his family lived and all she got was a harsh no. Kind of like his words is now still biting at her and he's still got this idea in his head that he's going to go and die. They the, the plan is set for the night that they'll camp close to where they are, close to the farm. And Perrin does so deliberately so that he can leave the morning early and go and do his own little reconnaissance at Eamon's Field with Ghoul. So they, uh, Gaul and uh, Perrin, have their separate camp still, not invited back to the, the lead party camp. Hmm. And um, Perrin didn't sleep through the night and sort of an hour before dawn, not sunrise. So it's wee hours of the morning. They decide to hit the road and get into Emmons Field. Sort of at the same time Rand would have left with Tam mm-hmm. to take Brandy in with Bella. Ah, just oh, simpler times. <laughs> yeah, simpler times. They um, they are seen by one of the maidens. Now they parent couldn't even see who it was with the pain or child, but they luckily didn't rouse a file to, to because she would have obviously mm. made a big big noise there about that. Then, 
So they uh, mission it and uh, sort of early hours of the morning when the farmers start stirring, um, Perrin and Gul enter sort of the village, but Perrin doesn't want eyes on him. So he heads towards the east of the village and sort of through the wine spring, actual spring, and back down to the wine spring in where they can hit the back door. Um, enters through the back door into the kitchens and he can smell all the great smells of home. Honey cakes and mm-hmm. baking and good wives baking. It's just it's like being back at home. Everything smells good. He uh, then sees Bran and Merrin in the the, the the common room. Bran rubbing his head and going through papers, looking all malely stressed. And uh, he just decides to walk in and announce himself. And is is still Miss Mistress Alvia and to Bran all the formalities. It's me, mm. Perrin. And just met with absolute gasps and shock. and um, But Perrin realizes that maybe he should have introduced the IEL man that's with him <laughs> over there. Yeah. <laughs> and does so. And there's quite a, a formal um, introduction uh, where Marin does the, a very formal uh, shade and water for you mm. uh, to Ghoul. And he's like, no, well, I just seek permission to protect your roof and she's like well only on one condition that you do it at my um uh she can basically say yes you can defend my house now mm-hmm. um he calls her a roof the, mistress uh, mm. roof mistress yeah yeah and the uh offers her a gold piece of yeah. <laughs> work yeah. in a in a bowl which is more wealth than it's in the village at all yeah but just this is for accepting me in yeah have some, yeah, and, have some uh, stolen they, loot. Uh, <laughs> have some stolen. Baron thinks that like uh, yeah, she wouldn't be too stoked if she knows that was stolen in Tia. Yeah, stolen for the fifth. Yeah, the high lords, oh. the high lords from Tia. They don't need this anymore. Yeah, yeah. they Actually, don't need that anymore. Use it as a spittoon, whatever. <laughs> yeah, so uh, they have a quick little catch up, um, but Marin is very quick on saying to Baron like, "You got to get out of here. Like your blood is wanted." And he's like, no, well, that's exactly why he's here, because he doesn't want his family to be in danger. And he wants to, you know, just he's going to hand himself over. And that way he'll keep his family safe. And uh, before they could say anything to him, the doors kicked in, basically. And in rolls to a yell, maidens of the spear <laughs> and file judo chopping. And she goes straight Straight for Pera, no, no hellos, no introductions. Just that this was your stupid plan, you stupid lummox, wool brain, no Brit, no head, and just keeps going at him. And ten minutes later, uh, she's still chewing his ears off. When um, Marin then says, uh, uh, "Perrin, can I ask you to introduce uh, your companions and this lovely young woman that thinks so highly of you?" <laughs> and she goes, red-faced, shy about her tavern uh, winch ways in the common room of a of Emmonsfield pub. But uh, she is then formally introduced to, to Vale and the uh, Bane and Chide who has exact same formalities, also offering a gift to seek the protection to, or to seek the permission to be able to protect the roof mistress's uh, mm-hmm. roof. And uh, they started, and poor Bran is just 
walking around rubbing sweat of his head i yield every second word like now there's three i yield look out the window is there more outside in the streets what's <laughs> happening yeah but uh the exchange then comes after it Marin took charge and sat both the Ail woman, <laughs> the two maidens, and uh, failed down with tea that they can actually carry on. Like, okay, cool, you've had your little episode now. <laughs> Calm down, let's have a discussion with this boy. Uh, but Brandon tells Perrin that uh, through all of this, Perrin initially was given a cup of brandy to sit. And when the news broke to him that uh, the farm has already burned. He's realized he squashed the cup like in his hand. And uh, the, he's like, okay, well, where's, where, is my, where is my family? I mean, they're going to need help to rebuild. Everything needs to be rebuilt. And, and Bran said to him, um, Perrin, they're all dead, my boy. And Perrin is in disbelief. It's like, dead? No, they can't be. Um, and he, 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 he that's sorry, that's when he crumpled the cup. Mm. They realized him. And parents saying, Are you sure? Adora, Dizelle, Piet, my mom, all of them, uh, your auntie and uncle, to your cousins, I helped bury them on the low hill under the apple trees. And uh, Mirren's like, So no, it was Strollocks that got them on the farm. Uh, one of the farms that was hit by one of these Trolloc raids. And Bran explains then to Perrin that Tam and Abel is uh, on the run. Matt's mom and sisters are alive um, and that they have also been captured by the White Cloaks. But they said, the, the discussion goes straight, like, Perrin, you need to get away from here. Like, did it, you, you're not going to bring them back by you handing yourself over like, uh, and more some information about the White Cloaks. They know a lot about Perrin. They ask about him. Bornold himself is mm. asking about him. And Payden Fane is there. But he doesn't answer to Fane or Payden or Payden Fane anymore. Mm-hmm. He's now Ordith. And uh, there's uh, and Perrin's like, well, that's your dark friend right there. Mm. That's That's the man that's making all of this happen. And then they get to the talk of, well, the White Lokes are kind of protecting them at the moment now. That with White Lokes there, the Trollocs are kept at bay. So they don't particularly want the White Lokes gone. And then Bane pipes up like, well, you don't get wolves to protect you from a lion or you don't get lions mm. to protect you from wolves. Like you end up in the other one's belly anyway. So mm. it's kind of silly. And then um, talk goes to Lord Luke, who's now in the area that has made himself of use to the people. He came in as a hunter of the horn and everyone speaks so highly of him. And he was, when the hunter of the horn um, situation is raised, Perrin's thoughts trail to, do you know him, Phil? And still wanting to tell Bran and Merrin that, um, yeah, she's a hunter for the horn as well. That's where she jumps up, Phil, and says, like, I have had enough and she walks around the table to Perrin and grabs his head and into her midriff and saying your mom is dead your dad has died your brothers your sister your brother your sisters 
your cousins, your auntie, your family, they are all dead. You, you can't change that even by, um, by dying. Let yourself grieve. Don't hold it inside where, um, where the, it will be allowed to fester. And he, uh, he grabbed Val's arms to, with the intention to you know, just shift her out of the way. But he realized that all that was keeping him up was the grip on her arms from his hands. And before he been, and when he was before he realized he couldn't stand and carry his own weight, he was sobbing into her dress like a baby. All I can say is, and all he could say is, I couldn't get here any faster. And Fial saying to him, "I know." And as she held his head, it was like she was stroking the tears out of him. She stroked the tears out of me. Yeah, heavy. Oh, Robert Jordan, not holding back on the uh, the, the character killing and the um, the death of loved ones or anything. Not pulling any punches. Yeah, let's just have another red wedding, but mm. kill a whole family. A little kid, it's like nine years old. Well, look, Trollocs. So it's it. Um, I hope that it was Trollocs and not uh, pain. Fain. Fain. Pain. Mm. Yes. Or did. I mean, it could have been both, right? Fain could have been mm. there with Trollocs. Yeah. Or even his white cloaks. Mm-hmm. And he's his band of merry old grey cloaks. He is the bloodhound after Perrin. Oh, I guess Bornhold actually also has a really, really big target on Perrin's back because of his dad. Um, but yeah. It's, it, there's no there's no comfort or solace to be gathered no, from nothing. that scenario whatsoever. I mean, I, I know they try and paint it as like at least it was Trollocs and it was you know it would have been over quick or I don't know mm. what rationale they used to say at least it was the Trollocs and not the White Cloaks. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It's fucking harsh. Yeah, and at least Perrin does grieve over it mm. at least for a short time. Um, not that his crying session was a short time, but you know, like it takes mm. much longer time than one cry to actually properly process all that stuff. Good information that we got out of there is just where the camp is, that uh, White River, or what's a white? Which camp at um, Watch Hill or Terran Ferry? Watch Hill. Um, no, the main camp is at Watch Hill. Yeah, sort of halfway and between Terran half, Ferry and Emmonsville. Yeah, and uh, they've obviously got the the. Uh, Matt's mom and sisters mm-hmm. that's being held uh, along with uh, Master Lewin and Elspeth. Um, mm-hmm. So how they managed to get her, well, she must have taken a few hours <laughs> out with her. Yeah. And um, yeah, there's now patrols that's riding in between. It's not safe to move around as easily as you want to. And they have got Baden Fane has put gold on his family's head. A shit ton of it as well. A shit ton of it. Like he's he's just pying for blood. But Tam and Abel and the Merry Men off in Nottingham Forest. <laughs> they also put a few arrows in uh, some white cloaks. Um, From already, a great distance, if I know Tam. <laughs> yeah. It's occupational hazard. If you're a white cloak. Hunting Tam. People will put <laughs> yeah. arrows in you. <laughs> I'll keep trying. <laughs> Is that the end of that chapter, Will? 
Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 yeah. the end of the chapter. Yeah. It ends very very sad. Like mm. the a long chapter with info 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 info, and then less than half of a page to absolutely break your heart. Yeah. It and that's that's what I want to mention there. The heartbreak. We didn't even meet any of the characters from his family. We don't know them no. at all. And the impact of their death hit me so hard. And it's just mm. like writing techniques, you know, you don't have to build relationships with every single character. You just build a relationship with Perrin and then yeah. you feel his pain so yeah. viscerally, you know, like yeah. I, I mm. literally, I had tears in my eyes. I also stopped reading at that. Mm. Like I had to put down. Man, I, was, I was weeping. Yeah, man. I was weeping. Tears was sitting there rolling like, down my cheeks. Man, where is this coming from? <laughs> yeah. Which, Bunch of weepy boys over here. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But yeah, it is, it, it's a real kick in the nuts, eh? Yeah, and I mean, children, the great aunt, uh, the mom, the dad, like everyone. Like I said, not pulling punches here at all. It's rough going. Indeed. Um, I had one other note here. <laughs> Gaul makes a comment along the lines of if a maiden loves you, you cannot escape her however hard you run. Yeah. Bad news, Gaul. <laughs> <laughs> She's coming. Prophetic words. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Should we move on from the heartbreak and start the, the road to recovery with the next chapter? No. We're going to start with the heartbreak still in this chapter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that chapter is chapter 30 and it is called beyond the oak which last time i had no recollection of the oak what the yeah. fuck and then reading it like ah yes of course like so many other things in the series <laughs> now i remember all right i didn't remember it but anyway we we pick all up right. with perrin having a long long cry the Afrikaans for it would be snot and trana. And mm -hmm. the English for that would be snot and tears. It is, yeah. yeah. Uh, he has a very, very long cry. And so did I and Moritz and Vili uh, cried with him. Everyone else is gone when he, when he um, takes his face away from, <laughs> from Fayil's snot and tear-drenched dress <laughs> um, and notices like everyone's gone and he's thankful that he had some privacy to kind of just let this all out. He's still embarrassed though that she had to see him like this and I'm like, dear God, Perrin, like, if she can't see it, then who else is allowed to see you like this, you know? Mm. Uh, but anyway, he's done with that. He's got it out of his system for now. So, uh, you know, he at this point as well now, and Fail makes him realize it as well, that now surrendering to the White Cloaks is stupid. They know about your family. They know about Rand. We know there's Trollocs in the area. We know that Peyton Fane is here. You giving yourself up to the noose is not going to help everyone, anyone. So she makes him understand that, and he's like, yes, yes, I get it. This is a dumb idea. It's stupid. Like, even if I die, they're still going to go after Rand's family. They're going to go after Matt's family. They're going to there's never, they're never going to stop. So that plan is out the window. Thank God that part of the story is now over. Hmm. All right. So instead, they plan a rescue mission. Dun, 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 dun. They are going <laughs> to go into the White, Clank, White Cloak camp, as previously planned, but not to die now, but to go and rescue the Luhans and Matt's mother and sisters. 
And oh yes, and also kill some Cholocks while they are at mm-hmm. it. And maybe enlist the help of this Lord Luke that everyone's been chatting about. So Fael is stoked. She's super happy that all of this is over, that their tiff is now over, and we can all get on with, with the story. <laughs> Thank fuck. This is the end of it, people. For now. Before we For get now. into before we get another little sidetracked uh, round two. Round two of the <laughs> Perrin and Fael story. But for now, we can leave this all behind us. So they start planning. All right. They are six of them, if you include Loyal as well. Of course, he's going to join them. Eight, if they can mm-hmm. find old Tam and Abel, uh, who he says are much, much better at the bow than he is. Fael nods skeptically. Like, sure, buddy. I've seen you shoot those dark hounds from 500 mm-hmm. paces, you know, right in the eye. She can't believe that anyone's better than him. And he's like, no, seriously, these guys are way better than me. And yeah. then if we can get Lord Luke in as well, we'll be nine people. And just hope that this Lord Luke is not another idiot hunter for the horn because I have met two of them before when I met old Gaul and they were dumbasses. So if they are, they're not allowed to join. He's not allowed to join us if he's another one of these guys. Um, Fael then suggests that visiting his family farm might be a good idea for him as well now and he's like no 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 first things first I can't I'll just break down again like we need to sort some shit out first first thing we need to do is we need to find Tam and Abel uh, at this point Master Elvia pops his head into the common room again from the kitchen and he's like um, there's an ogier in my kitchen <laughs> having a cup of tea that is tiny in his gigantic hands would you mind coming in here for a moment um, so they decide to move as well as fast as possible because someone might tell the white cloaks about them any moment. So this is already yeah. they're in the kitchen now. They've moved in. So they come in the kitchen and there's uh, three Aiel sitting on the floor along with uh, Loyal also sitting on the floor just because he can't stand. He's too tall. He's, mm. you know, he can't fit in there. And they're all just having tea. <laughs> thought it's great. Isn't isn't Loyal sitting on the floor with his arm like resting on a, like a table on or the a table. countertop table. or something? Drinking tea out of a bowl, <laughs> which like still looks yeah, like a tiny little thing in his hands. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, Baron walked in thinking, but that, that teacup doesn't look that small. And then he realizes, no, they gave him a bowl. Yeah. <laughs> of course, Mistress Elvia um, is still trying to pretend that everything is normal, everything is fine. <laughs> but the, the Ogier really, that got her. Like, she can pretend Aiel are normal, but the Ogier, no, she can't, she can't hide that. So Master Alvio uh, tells them that uh, Tam and Abel are, are somewhere out hiding in the Westwood, but suggests again, like, let's just leave it. Forget this crazy plan of yours and get out of here because they're going to hang you if they find you. It's too dangerous. Mm-hmm. And he's like, whatever. They decline. Um, they, uh, they join the others in some, some, some light snacks in the kitchen. Uh, I think they are mm-hmm. having cheese and pickles. <laughs> and yeah. the idea of just watching Bane and Chayad sitting on the floor with a cup of tea and some cheese and pickles is just hilarious. Loyal gives his condolences to Perrin, because obviously they found out now that uh, mm. his whole family is dead, and offers to sing to the apple trees under which his family is buried. And I thought, that's so cool. Um, and I don't mm. remember seeing that later on, and I, but I hope he does fulfill that, that promise too. later on. Um, so Perrin tells him about the plan. Leaving out the part about the Trollocs for the moment, the snuff on their plates as is, um, everyone's on board. Duh, obviously. Mr. Salvia thinks they are fools, of course, but offers to help them find uh, somewhere to lay low. 
Master Luhan says, yeah, why not the old sick house? Uh, the old, old one. Not the old one, but the one that before we had before that. And Mr. Salvia shoots him like a glance, like, shut up. <sighs> but he doesn't know. We do later on, of course. So they uh, split up into smaller parties. They decide, okay, moving through the town as one giant group with an ogier is going to draw far, much at- far too much attention. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to sp- split up into smaller groups. Mr. Salvia insists on leading the way they're like no we know the way and she's like no 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 i will go with you i will show you the way so they're like, fine whatever um brand's like why can't i do it and she's like listen you are the mayor people are going to notice if you are walking through town and through the woods and stuff you're going to draw too much attention let me do it as well all right everyone's going to meet at the oak tree which is where the title mm-hmm. of it comes down so this oak tree was split by lightning years ago it's very distinctive they'll meet there the Ail are going on their own little mission on the side they're like no we'll find the tree by ourselves and of course they will. <laughs> They're not going to mm-hmm. get lost. Without being seen. No, without being seen, of course. And L'Oreal as well is going to go with Matt and uh, Fayil. And they'll meet up Perrin? later. And uh, Matt, sorry. Perrin. Perrin and Fayil. That's it. I just want to <laughs> hear from Matt. Here. Matt, come on, Matt, where are you? Um, the plan for disguising L'Oreal is to put him in a cloak. Just genius. <laughs> like, he'll just look like a... Like loyal in a cloak. Um, so uh-huh. then they got great plans. Everyone's splitting up. They're going to go there. They're going to do this. It's all great. But before they even get underway, old Senbui turns up to ruin everybody's plans. <sighs> He's snooping around the back of the inn, looking at the horses. Sneaky little bastard that he is. And he's interested, you know, he sees like Loyal's horses like, oh shit, you know, <laughs> who, who came in on this thing? And uh, turns around just as they were coming out the back door and... Uh, sees Loyal and freaks out. Of course, he thinks he's a trollic at first glance, but of course, Mr. Sylvia threatens him with violence into silence. Uh, he mm-hmm. recognizes Perrin as well. So this this kind of cloak thing is not really working. They all got no. cloaks on. It's, you know, like uh, men hiding in the tower. Yes. <laughs> Their disguises need work, but these these cloaks are not working. Marin deals out some more insults and threats to, uh, to kind of get uh, Sen to shut up and not give them away. Perrin has to stop Fahil from murdering him because he feels her tense. And when he looks down, she's got a knife in her hands. It's like, Jesus, chick, <laughs> just calm down for a second. This is old saying he's an idiot. He's, he, may, he may be an idiot, but he's not, he's not so dangerous that we have to kill him. Just, just chill out for a second. Perrin has brought a couple of wolves of his own into the middle of this town. It's like he's <laughs> yeah. walking killing machines. <laughs> yeah, like Sen, you don't know what you've stepped into, buddy. No. Just shut up and leave. Fael is also very impressed on how well Marin has handled the men in in this group so far um, and mentions it and Perrin quickly steps in before she gets any ideas and is like, well, look at the time, we got to go. It's time for everyone to move in and everybody starts on their journey. So after a short journey uh, of barely getting noticed, apparently when they were moving, everyone was lunchtime, so nobody was really out. A few kids in the fields, you know, watching the sheep and whatnot. Mm. They do get noticed because Loyal is a giant on a giant horse. Um, and we get to the, the oak tree where the Aiel are already there waiting, obviously, mm-hmm. with Mistress Elvia herself. Um, she insists they go the rest of the way on foot and to leave the horses. And they're like, fine, okay, woman, we'll, we'll do whatever you say. Um, Loyal, along the way, is very impressed with the trees. He does make mention of the beautiful trees that are in this area and how tall and beautiful and, and luscious they are. And suddenly Perrin smells a man. The Aiel tense as well. Uh, but Marin tells him, okay, everybody just, just chill out because they hear like a rustle and he smells a smell and two waters just melt out of thin air in front of the path. It's Thomas and Ivan. 
from the show. Hey, guys. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time we see them. All right. Mm-hmm. They are with arrows knocked and drawn, pointing it at them. And uh, even though Marin is trying to calm everything down, these waters do not take their arrows off anyone. The Aeel do not stop tensing, ready to attack or run or jump or do whatever Aeel do. Fael has a knife out already. Uh, the waters make note of it as well. Like, oh, what a strange group. An Ogier, some Aeel, and a feisty woman with a knife. <laughs> and Perrin turns around. <laughs> she's got her knife out, ready to throw. And he's like, oh, yeah, you better watch out for her. She's good with that. Yeah. Um, so it turns out that old Marin has been hiding some Aes Sedai in the old sick house, which is why she gave a glare to her husband who mentioned it. And Perrin's like, why didn't mm. you tell us? And he's, why didn't Master Avil tell us? And he's like, well, he doesn't know. This is women's circle business. Apparently, mm-hmm. when the White Cloaks arrived, the Aes Sedai, Varen, and Alana were already mm-hmm. in the Two Rivers area. They were in Watch Hill, I think. So when the White Cloaks pulled in, they had to sneak them out. So the Women's Circle, between Women's Circle, organized something and snuck them out. And now they're hiding in the sick house here in, uh, in the woods. Perrin is not thrilled at the idea of hiding with some Aes Sedai. He has experience um Marin asks him like you're not af- you're not afraid or you know he's like no well listen you know they, they are Aes Sedai and then they are Aes Sedai you know so mm-hmm. I I prefer just to avoid them completely um Ivan during this conversation has already melted back into the woods and he's gone back to the Aes Sedai to warn them and tell them what's happening uh his skills uh, are impressing the Aes- the Aiel as well um and Perrin doesn't trust whoever these Aes Sedai are because at this point in the story we don't know that it's Varen and Alana which still would not, even if he knew that would not fill him with trust anyway no, don't think met, met her before alright, but he figures hey man, having two Aes Sedai will be super handy when we go fighting some Trollocs and those mm-hmm. are the thoughts we leave him on as the chapter ends Sure. do you think um, Perrin is fixating on killing the Trollocs because of his wolfishness? I think it's just you don't have Trollocs. You can't leave them running around the two rivers, regardless of your wolfishness. He's not, not telling anyone about it yet. I, I don't know. I got the sense that he had this almost like uncontrollable urge to go see to the Trollocs. And it was almost like a, nah, like a wolf he's, instinct. His first urge is to free his people. Yeah. And then as soon as that's fulfilled, and he's got the, the first bit of the younglings forming with him, hmm. they're like, what do we do now? Now, which younglings? You have to be careful because there is a group of people called the younglings. (laughs) The youngsters. We'll call these ones the youngsters because they're not the younglings. They're not the younglings. Not Gavins. Don't they form a band, uh, a group? Yeah, uh, themselves. The 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 two rivers militia. The tour. Yeah. (laughs) Two rivers militia. Whatever. What are they called? The archers. They they get all these young kids uh, uh, to. To protect the two but rivers. yes, it's uh, he's he's bloodlust for the Trollocs still come. That that happened in the ways as well. Family matters first. He put himself in mortal danger just stepping in in between Bane yes. and Cheyenne's arrows to, to get, get to the, the fade. fade. Yeah, mm. the Neverborn. Yeah, he had to he had to withdraw the urge to bite its neck <laughs> yeah. physically mm. and say, okay, now you got a hammer. Crash its skull with a hammer. And afterwards, it's like that thing was wielding a sword from Thakandar, you know, like yeah. a nick from mm. that sword and he'd be dead. Yeah. And so that was, that was that he... definitely his wolfishness 
uh, mm. overtaking. But I think in this instance, the fact that he that he chose to save the the people first, he promised Matt he could look after his, mm. his mom and sisters. Mm. And um, I think he's just not trying to talk about the Trollocs just yet, not to freak everyone out. He he says something, or he thinks something along the lines of, we can sort out all this other stuff, but there's no way I'm leaving the two rivers with Trollocs here. That's just mm. practical. You don't leave Trollocs in the two rivers. Why would you just like save the people and then leave Trollocs? Like, this? It's just... Mm. I mean, sure, when he gets into battle with them, the wolfish hatred of them will definitely take over. But it's just like a logical, practical step to to make sure that Fair they enough. are all dead before you leave. <laughs> yeah. So. So. Pretty straightforward. Do they? They don't mention anything about Alana or Varen here, do they? They no, only mention the waters. And those waters are Thomas is Varen's water, and Ivan is Alana's water. So, I guess you could infer who the the Aes Sedai are. Um, trying to think with the waters, the waters would know who Perrin was because Varen and Alana were both in Faldara. And Perrin traveled with, with, um, with Varen, Varen from mm. Faldara. But, I, but uh, Thomas wasn't with her. No, no, Thomas wasn't. But there is a bond and I'm sure she would have told him stuff about where they were and why they were there. I never knew why he was not around when Varen traveled with them all the way from Faldara to Falme. Thomas you know, she had to do black archer business in between. I'm pretty sure he's, you know, he doesn't go with her to a lot of places, so he's kind of used to it. Maybe, because he knows she's a dark friend. He had to also turn. Hmm. Yeah. Heavy days. <sighs> Crazy. Yeah. I mean, I, the, all I want to talk about is like what's going to happen and like how annoyed I've been with Alana in the past, and you know, like how. I think they describe her from when you meet her here. Isn't she still super emotional after the death of her warder or of one of her warders? Was it Ivan that mm. dies? She's an emotional wreck mm. for a long time mm. because of um, a dead warder. Um, and she also bonds around against his will. So I've got this like built in distrust of her. Yeah, look, it's it's not misplaced, this distrust. <laughs> it's no, good. no, 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 it's well earned. And something I read about her, like, I'm getting way ahead of myself, but she's uh, an important piece of the puzzle all the way to the very last book. Yes. Her bond with Rand, like, the Forsaken try to exploit it. So she becomes a pawn in the game all the way to Tom and Gardon. To the last hunt. Yes. But man, we all, we all know what's coming here, right? The Battle of Two Rivers. Yes. Super, super excited for that. Well, it doesn't come up. In, I mean, I was on chapter 37 and it still wasn't. It still hadn't happened. Um, it's a lot of toing and froing with the white cloaks that has to happen. No, and... not by 39 yet. Yeah. It's the end of the book. It's the grand finale for this one. Mm. Right. Cool. And then after Exciting we've all stuff. read that, do check out that Nabless video where he breaks it down. I have before. So have I, but I want to read it again. I want to read it and then watch yeah. that video again. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Compulsory watching before our next recording for that episode. Indeed. So did you guys remember to pick one single favorite moment in all? <laughs> I'm getting good now. Like by, by episode 32, I now regularly remember <laughs> to choose a favorite I'm moment. I'm very proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> it's only taken two years. Why don't you tell us, Jody? what is your favorite moment? I'm going to read it. I have it right here. Excellent. <clears throat> I am still Ail, Lewin shouted. 
but they did not look back. He thought he heard Luca crying. The wind rose, picking up dust, and he veiled his face. I am Aiel. That spot. Right. Oh, there. yes. <laughs> that is also mine. <laughs> <laughs> of course it is. But it is t- it's, tied, it's tied for first place with um, Mandine saying to the Aiel, take me to Ruwidian, Aiel. I will match your courage. Ooh. Good Aiel moments, yes. Mm, mm, mm. Um, I like that Man- Mandine one, uh, Ma- Mandine, Man- whatever his name was, uh, because in it he re- he calls the gen Aiel. So it's mm. this like big moment for the other Aiel to recognize and admit that the gen are Aiel. And then obviously the line about matching his courage. How about you, Vol? Well, I'm not going to fanboy out about the Aiel and the long history and all of that. I'd, <laughs> I'd leave that fanboying to you guys to do. Uh, mine is straight and simple. Always back to the good old guy in black, Matt, whose first <laughs> words after being resuscitated <laughs> from being dead, being dead, yes. is those same flaming sons of goats. <laughs> <laughs> they tried to kill me. Try. They tried to kill they me. They did try. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, it's so good, hey. Oh god. Uh, I love Matty. He's so consistent. Irrepressible. Mm. We, we keep saying that this is where it gets good with Matt, but it just keeps getting better and better and it better. It does, hey. It's so great. Um I had a couple of honorable mentions. Um one of them being Gaul sort of saying to Perrin, Okay, you think you're not a warrior, but I've seen you dance the spears and Randall Thor and the one they call Matt. You've you've Descendants of Manetheran, for the, sure. The blood of Manetheran is strong with these people. Oh, yes. yes. Um, uh, and another one being that scene of the Sharom collapsing Ooh. down on the column mm. down. Just like, it, it is just so different and so weird. Like, I'm picturing like things like, you know, sci-fi cars flying through the sky mm. and like, you know, a completely different cityscape. Like who knows what the buildings look like, Chora trees everywhere. And then this huge floating sphere, which I think is also a pretty consistent motif in the video game destiny. Like destiny also has this massive sphere floating mm. above a city. Um, seems like a lot of pop culture references coming from the wheel of time. Memento. <laughs> destiny. <laughs> yeah. Nolan definitely, definitely stole it. From, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, Adrian wrote in, and she said her favorite moment was Loyal sitting in uh, Mistress Elvia's kitchen, trying to sort of not look imposing, but still shocked. And like, he's, actually, I've got her email here. Hang on. She says, uh, trying to simultaneously shrink, look polite, seem harmless, and discreetly look around for books. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's real good. Okay, so to our listeners, send in your favorite moments, send your theories, your callbacks. You heard us do it tonight. We called back to episode one when Moraine and Tom met each other, the Glee Man. Wow, that's that's really taking it back. Um, so write in any theories, anytime. Um, we are eager to hear. You can tweet us at Blood and Ash Pod on Twitter or follow any of the social media hyperlinks in the episode description. And tune in next time when we will cover chapters 31 through 36. Again, a nice even six chapters 
uh, starting with chapter 31 called Assurances and chapter 36 called Misdirections. <laughs> Almost like two sides of the same coin, those two chapter names. They don't actually tell you anything, but uh, they, they would lead you down a path of probably some kind of subterfuge. Misdirections, I guess, is yeah, exactly I'll- that. I assure you, I'll do this thing. I'm going to do something else now. <laughs> I like the way you pronounced assurances. Like, assurances? <laughs> I'm Ron Burgundy. <laughs> All right, guys. We've uh, put our listeners through enough. This history lesson has concluded. Uh, but we will see them all for some more recreational reading in our next episode. So see you all next time. Cheers, everyone. Adios, mi amigos. Hey! Ha, 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 ha.